Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> Don't Chart music. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Hey! <laughs> oh dear. It's going to be one of them. Leave that in. That is well Black Sabbath. <laughs> hey up, you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee of a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always, I'm joined by two people who know shit. One of those people is Simon Price. Hello, Simon. How are you? I'm all right. I'm, I'm in that pre-Christmas limbo where the tree is up, but I've still got loads of work on, so I can't kind of relax into it yet. So, you know, I've I've had a few... Christmas gatherings, but I'm always thinking, yes, I will have another glass of mulled wine, but it must not, mm. repeat, not turn into an all-night rave. <laughs> our second guest is our old mate, Neil Kulkarni. Hey up, Neil. How are uh, well? Hello, well, I'm fine, thank you. Speaking to you, of course, from um, the 2021 City of Culture, Coventry, which is announced. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yes, well I don't know what it means and who's going to get whatever money comes our way, but it's good, I guess. Well, it means that everyone else has a go for you for a whole year going, oh, look at them thinking the summit. Neil, start, start putting in some outrageous requests for kind of Arts Council grants and stuff right now. Milk it, milk so, it for yeah. what it's worth. I think so, absolutely. I've got to be a part of um, the City of Culture in, in 2021 in some way. I've just got a feeling that all the money is going to go to you know, fucking... The usual suspects, well, yeah. Well, cupcake hipster hubs and shit like oh, that. And, and those, you know. those cunts. But we shall see, we shall see. Well, what you want to put in for is, you got a river near you or something? We've got a river under us called the Sherbourne, which oh, um, is only visible in two places in Coventry, usually full of shopping trolleys. Right. What you want is a massive 50-foot Walt Jabsco straddling it <laughs> that, can be, that can be seen from Birmingham. That would be a great idea. Anything, basically, that doesn't involve the enemy will be good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we, we did it in Nottingham. We bid for European city of culture, and then uh, everybody realised that we weren't going to be part of Europe soon, so we were told to fuck off. But that would have been awful. Neil, the enemy, the enemy have split up. Let it go, man. Yeah. <laughs> the enemy have split up. I would, you know, I would let it go. But unfortunately, Tom Clark, the lead singer, is now doing uh, anniversary shows, oh, 10 years since the enemy started, that are all sold out. I must tell you, at some point, by the way, um, about a year ago, I got an email from Tom Clark Ooh. from the enemy. Um, regarding the, a review I wrote of his band um, a few years Amazing ago. review on the quietest, was not it? Uh, it mm. it was yeah it was on the quietest. It was the longest email I have ever received from anybody. Wow! It was six pages long, and he was pouring his heart out. I think he was having a bit of a midlife crisis Shit. or something. Oh no! I must admit, I didn't get to the end of it and didn't reply. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, maybe I should. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
It's just his face was up on bloody billboards in Coventry a few years ago. So oh. I just want the enemy. The enemy, seen as they're from fucking Kenilworth anyway, I want them extricated from any city of culture <laughs> malarkey that goes on. Oh, yeah. I mean, God knows what would have happened if Nottingham had been a city of culture. I mean, fucking hell. When Jake Bug got a number one album, the, fu- <laughs> the fucking council ran a banner right across the front of the fucking... T- council house which is our town hall and it's just like oh don't do that for fuck's sake man alive from champions of europe to jake bug yeah <laughs> exactly yeah exactly Ugh, enough of this bollocks enough of this modern future shit let's 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 have a, a nice warm bath in the past this episode pop craze youngsters takes us all the way back to december the 22nd 1983 we're only three and a half years down the line from our last episode in uh, September of 1980, but it's safe to say that much has changed in Popland, doesn't it, chaps? Indeed. Um, it, 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 this is the year, even though it's kind of the official version of pop history, that things start going shit in 83. You know, I was looking in this episode for disproof of that, but I found precious little. I mean, mm. you know, the, the standard line is that it all went wrong with um, Band-Aid and Live-Aid, you know, a couple of years later. But really, I think, uh, even at this point in 83, we can see that the edges have been smoothed off the kind of post-punk and new wave. So, yeah, I mean, you might as well turn off now because... (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be shit. It really is. actually all right. What was in the news this week? Well, 19 people have been killed in a bombing raid outside a French army base in Beirut. Dennis Nielsen has been slashed across the face with a razor in Wormwood Scrubs. Four Irish people are being questioned about the Harrods bombing, which took place a week ago. The Jules Remade trophy has been nicked from the Brazilian Soccer Federation officers. Oh, fucking hell, Brazil. Can't be trusted with anything. Should have left it with us. But the big news this week is that John Taylor of Duran Duran refused to give a 14-year-old fan a kiss in a hotel lobby, only to be told to give her a kiss, you miserable old sod, by Jeffrey Boycott, <laughs> who was dressed as Santa. <laughs> How times have changed, because if he had given that 14-year-old girl a kiss, imagine the shit he'd be getting for it now. (laughs) Different times. The cover of The Enemy this week is Santa playing a saxophone. Oh, isn't that nice? With Suze, Tracy Ullman, New Order and Marilyn mentioned on the cover. The cover of Smash is Howard Jones. Mm. On the back is a photo of Boy George and his mum, suitably George Dub, bless him. I had that on my wall, that picture. Did you? Yeah. Well, did, did you have a thing for Boy George's mum? Oh, yeah. No, he's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to come to that. <laughs> <laughs> this week's issue of Smash Hits also has the Smash Hits Reader's Poll of 1983. Shall we play a game, chaps? Yes, please. Oh. Best group? Yeah. Uh, Culture Club. Culture Club, yeah. Duran Duran. Yeah. Ooh. Fun. Best single? Hmm. Uh... Wherever I Lay My Hat by Paul Young. Um, Karma Chameleon? Karma Chameleon. Get in. Shit. Also won the award for best video, even though George said it was the worst video his band had ever done. Best LP? Hmm. Um, by someone who hasn't been mentioned so far. I'll give you a little clue on that. Oh, right. Uh, Um, 83. Did Thriller come out in 83? It did, yes. 
thriller then, Michael Jackson? Um, I agree with Neil. Yeah, that's got to be it, hasn't it? Fantastic by Wham. Oh, what? right. <laughs> Best male singer. Paul Young. Not a solo singer. I'll give you another go. Oh, oh right. Boy George. Boy George. Simon Le Bon. Oh. oh. Best female singer. 83. Uh, Annie um, Lennox. No. Oh, damn, you beat me to it. Right, Sorry, if it's mate. not her. Um, if it's not her, then Toya? No. Ah, uh, go on, go on. What is it? Tracy Ullman. Oh, wow. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most promising act for 1984, Big Country. Oh, can I ask? Can I have a clue? Is it a solo person or is it a band? It's solo. I reckon it's Howard Jones then. Simon, you can have another go. Um, well, he's already taken Howard Jones, so I'll say Nick Kershaw. <laughs> Howard Jones. Yeah, yeah. And the best TV show, The Young Ones. Gotta be The Young Ones. Top of the pops. <laughs> So, not only do we have a shit episode from 1983, we also have some guests who knew absolutely fuck all about 1983. <laughs> yeah, but the it's, thing is... It's going to be a great episode, The thing everyone. is that, Al, it, 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 you talk about Smash Hits. I've got to say, this was the year I, I started reading the music press, I think, and Smash Hits mm. became part of the pop experience. Enemy and uh, Melody Maker was still a bit too daunting for me. I was only young. Mm. But Smash mm. Hits was, you know, just a Bible. And uh, the two yeah, weeks... Wait, because I remember it only came out once every two weeks, didn't it? It wasn't a weekly. Yeah, um, that out, yeah. wait for um, yeah. Smash Hits to come out was a killer. Uh, mainly, yeah. I liked it because of the printed song lyrics. Obviously, I think that's why most people of course, it yeah. then. And it wasn't like I remembered the writers' names as such. But yeah, Smash Hits was a big, big part of liking pop music in '83. Yeah, well, you know, this poll and everything—it's it's only what girls fancy that wins. <laughs> <laughs> The number one LP at the minute is now That's What I Call Music, the original, the original one, oh. with No Parlay by Paul Young at number two. In the US, the number one single is Say, Say, Say by Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. And the number one LP is Can't Slow Down by Lionel Richie. <laughs> did, did Lionel Richie ever start up? Never mind, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> so, chaps, what were we doing in December 1983? Were you waiting for Santa? I bloody loved Christmas. I still love Christmas. So yeah, I would, I would have been getting tremendously excited about about um, about Christmas and what presents I was getting. First sort of time I was probably getting music related presents in a sense, tape players and things like that. And first yeah. time really, eighty three. I, I remember sort of a little route around town that I used to do, rather than being taken places by my parents or something. It was the time mm. to be going into town by myself and doing that route. Um, between Poster Place, which was a badges and poster shopping cop, and um, all the record yeah. shops, toy shop, library, bookshops. Um, that was my little route. And just doing that like every Saturday. And consequently, yeah. I, I think in 83, a division between the charts and listening to the charts and actually my wider listening started. I started to listen to other music that was coming out that wasn't getting in the charts. Um, partly mm. down, I think, to, to smash it's being such a big part of my life at that time. Um, that you just, it just, even though obviously it was, it, I loved it because it loved pop music. It went beyond the charts a little bit and introduced you to things that you know weren't making the top forty sometimes. So it, it was the start of that for me, really. Simon, uh, the latest instalment of my autobiography. Yeah, um, oh, yes. Uh, Nineteen eighty-three. Um, I was fifteen for most of the year. Um, Sixteen when this 
TOTP was broadcast and uh, I was in the fifth form of Barry Boy's Comprehensive and I turned a corner and somehow become one of the popular kids um, and the weird thing is oh. I can pinpoint how'd you do that? <laughs> well I can pinpoint the exact moment it happened it was a really weird thing it was on a school trip uh, we went to Dinar in Brittany um, and we were allowed to wear our own clothes and there was this very right. very localised fashion trend in Barry for these burgundy cardigans with a big grey letter oh. Y on them for Yale I guess yeah. <laughs> And um, yes. and I, I, it's for, well, you say yes, but I talk to people from other towns, and no one's heard of this. But <laughs> yeah, we had that. Did you? Oh, I thought it was a real yeah. Barry thing. Well, anyway, all the cool kids had one, and I I had got one for my birthday. And when I got on the bus for this school trip, wearing that cardigan, all these lads who previously wouldn't have been seen dead hanging around with me were shouting, "Simon, come and sit with us!" Indicating the the back seats of the coach where all the cool kids sat, um, or, or more likely, they're going, "Scary, come and sit with us!" Because Scary was my nickname for a while. Um, <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's a whole other story. Um, well, uh, well, let me break in there because I have seen photos of you from this town and you do look massively Stebsonian. <laughs> <laughs> you were the spit of Gripper Stebson, man. Harsh, harsh. Um, yeah. But true. <laughs> well, what it was, uh, I remember when I first arrived at that school, um, we all hung around in the classroom before um, reg- uh, you know, the register one morning and uh, um, somebody decided to have a competition of who could pull the scariest face. And, and I won. <laughs> so that was it. From then on, I was scary for a bit. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, certainly just from wearing the right cardigan, I was one of the cool kids. And um, in an instant, I just thought, well, is that all it takes? And suddenly yeah. I kind of realised how worthless it was, you know, you know, breaking your ass to try and be one of the popular kids. So, But I, 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 yeah. I maintained it through the fifth form by being that that cliche the kid who isn't hard but is funny and can make the tough kids laugh i was i was that kid uh, and um and of course you know only about six or so years down the line if you'd have worn a baseball cap with an x on it uh, you'd have been you'd have been a cool kid then exactly see that's all it is just wear someone with a fucking letter, letter on the it. alphabet yeah and um i was re- as, as neil says yes similar I, I was reading smash hits every fortnight um mm. And obsessively watching the young ones when it was on. Um, yeah. Still following Liverpool FC. Still playing Sabutio. Um, I started taking piano lessons a bit reluctantly. Um, my <laughs> mum kind of made me yeah. do it. Uh, but what I much preferred doing was hanging around the local park with a little gang of local ne'er-do-wells and hooligans and going on midnight rampages, destroying municipal flower beds and tagging oh. street furniture with marker pens. Um, and, um, and music-wise, music-wise, Simon, yeah, where, um, albums, your head at? The albums I've been playing to death that year were ABC Lexicon of Love, which had come out the previous year, Dexy's Two Rye, Ditto, um, Culture Club Colour by Numbers, Big Country The Crossing, Paul Young's No Parley. But m- more than anything else, musically, this was my socialism period. So um, yeah. the Style Council were a really big deal yeah. for me, and and I loved pretty much any band who mixed vintage soul music with left-wing politics. You know, the previous mm. year, there had been the Falklands War and then there'd been the general election in 83 that um, yeah. uh, Michael Foote absolutely destroyed by Margaret Thatcher. And there was this kind of despondency, but also this mm-hmm. feeling that if we all just get together and, and listen to the Kane Gang and Fine Young Cannibals, everything might be all right, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and also... Um, a bit similar to what Neil was just saying about this kind of divide opening up between what was in the charts and what your real musical tastes were. Um, I think I was I was watching Talk the Pops religiously every week, but but a bit a bit cynically now. Mm. By now, I was yeah. I was sort of watching it, thinking, ah, oh, oh, for fuck's sake, why isn't the good stuff on? You know what I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Is that that period was kicking in? 
Yeah. I mean, uh, as far as cardigans go, round about this time, I was wearing a zipper one, a blue zipper one with the word sport across it. <laughs> nice. Because I was a bit different from the white cardigan wearing fuckers, you know, <laughs> like, like the chaff. Uh, and I teamed that with a pair of very tight stay pressed. Yeah. The one thing about stay pressed, and a lot of my uh, a lot of my friends discovered this as well, is at the time they were being worn so tight they would split at the crotch um, <laughs> right underneath right underneath the crotch as well and uh, my mates discovered that if you kind of like laid on your back with your legs in the air when you've got the split you could go hey everyone look at my fan air <laughs> so stupidly tight stay pressed yeah. with with a split team that with a really mad stripy shirt i'd got from a charity shop uh, and a, a black and red Opal cravat that I'd got from the same charity shop nice. and a pair of jam shoes. I looked such a cunt <laughs> in 1983, <laughs> but I wouldn't be told any other way. Of course not. No, I, You know, that's how I spent late 1983. I'd just like to kind of go back. Pricey said um, that he found, not he found a way to be popular, but he got in with the popular kids in a sense at that time. because In um, with the in-crowd. In with the in-crowd because of being funny. I, I feel so mm. much sort of um, kinship with that, if you like. Um, yeah, and I think too. probably a lot of, in a sense, uh, uh, it sounds poncy to say it, but, you know, writers and music writers will feel some solidarity with that in a sense. It, it, Definitely. It, we, we all sort of realise at some point in our lives, I think, that words helped. And, and yeah. you know, they could actually sort of, open doors and stuff and they could you know if you you didn't look the part or you didn't look like one of the popular kids but you could use your gob in a kind of funny way and say funny shit you you kind of got by and you were not left alone necessarily but but it was a way in and and i think that's important for any writer to realize and 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 perhaps that was the start of my realization at this time as well that yeah if you could be funny with words then you might be all right yeah but as we know from from the time, words don't come easy. <laughs> what was on telly this very day? Well, BBC One has run Postman Pat, the Bing Crosby film, Birth of the Blues, Play School, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, News Round, Blue Peter, 60 Minutes, The Replacement for Nationwide, Angels and, of course, Tomorrow's World. BBC Two has screened the Cary Grant film Mr Blandings Builds His Dream House, the semi-final of the World Chess Championships and, unbelievably, the sports personality of the year ceremony. Fancy having that on on a Thursday afternoon as if it means shit. Yeah, I've just remembered, though, chess on telly. That was a big thing. That yeah, it was, it was massive. Moving. Yeah, there was an entire chess show, in fact, I seem to recall. Yeah. Um, for half an hour every week. Play chess, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sports personality of the year that year was, I'm not even going to ask you, because I know you get it wrong, Steve Cram. Oh, right. Oh, I was always Would you have got it wrong? I, yeah, because I, I wasn't even at Olympics yeah. that year, so that is kind of surprising. Yeah. yeah. Very I was odd, always, very a, always an Yvette man myself. Yeah, me too. There's a statue of fuck, Steve Yvette just about um, half, half a mile yeah. from where I live in Brighton on the seafront. And um, a couple of years ago, it got stolen. Someone <laughs> so, so, someone took a hacksaw and, and sawed through Steve Yvette's ankle and took it away and put it in their garden <laughs> until, until, until it was like someone grasped them up and it's been reinstated. But it's it's right on this bit where everyone goes jogging. So um, and he's in kind of full kind of running pose. So I think it says kind of motivation, like "Come on, you can do it. Be be like Steve Ovet, but don't get your ankle sawn through." 
ITV has shown the Ian Carmichael film Double Bunk, the health show Bodyline, Give Us a Clue, Crossroads, Emmerdale Farm, and his just trotting out Carry On Laughing Christmas classics. Meanwhile, Channel 4 has run the Buston Keaton film The Three Ages, The Adams Family, Anything We Can Do, which is an improvised drama series, and is currently running Channel 4 News. Not very Christmassy, is it? Since it's only about three days beforehand. Ah, well, we didn't have that. You know, in those days, Christmas was Christmas, and you didn't have, like, a, th- a three-month run-up to it. <laughs> All right, then, pop crazy youngsters, it's time to get our hands down the trousers of late December 1983. Oh, what a very special time <laughs> for me. See what you did there. You know how we do things by now. We may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget <laughs> they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Hello, fans, and welcome to another live Top of the Pops. As you can see, because it's the Christmas season, we're all dressed up in uh, fancy dress. I like yours. Thanks very much. We've really gone all the way for this one, and we're going to kick off in a party mood with Slade, and Merry Christmas, everybody! <laughs> December the 22nd, 1983, and Top of the Pops has decided to get into the Christmas spirit. But Bart adding a few hovering baubles and the words Christmas 83 to its opening titles, you can barely tell the difference because it's proper flags and balloons time. Also, it's fully into its period of teaming up two Radio 1 DJs. The first one, now known as David Jensen because he's 30 fucking three now, Kid Jensen is currently handling the early evening slot on Radio 1 and actually should be on there right now. But as this show is live, he's either put a dead big record on or someone is filling in for him. (laughs) His partner, born John Ravenscroft in Cheshire in 1939, John Peel was the son of a cotton merchant who went to Shrewsbury School with Michael Palin before taking up his dad's profession. At the age of 21, he moved to Dallas to work with an associate of his father, and when JFK was assassinated, he went to the police station where Lee Harvey Oswald was held, passed himself off as a reporter from the Liverpool Echo, and was in the room when he was presented to the media. He went on to co-present the radio show Cat's Caravan for WRR Radio in Dallas, and then became Cliff's official Beatles correspondent, before working for KOMA in Oklahoma City and KMEN in San Bernardino. When he returned to the UK, he landed a gig on the pirate station Radio London, forging a reputation as an underground DJ on his late-night show, The Perfume Garden. A month after Radio London was closed down, he was picked up by the new Radio 1 and made the late-night slot his very own. He presented his first episode of Top of the Pops in 1968, but after protesting on air about the lack of Captain Beefheart and Tyrannosaurus Rex and forgetting the name of Amen Corner, he wasn't asked back again until 1981. He's been regularly presenting Top of the Pops since 1982, and this very evening he can be heard presenting the second part of his festive fifth day, which features the likes of The Fall, The Cocteau Twins and Exmile Deutschland, 
and opens that radio show by saying, you're always supposed to be bright and breezy, okay, really on top of everything on wonderful Radio 1. But obviously there are quite clearly times when you get tired, and after doing Top of the Pops is one of them, because you have two complete run-throughs of the programme before you actually do it, and it's very hot, and you expend a great deal of nervous energy. By the time you've finished, you're actually feeling quite drained. All you want to do is go down to the pub and have a drink, and then go home and go to bed, by and large. But of course, it's always a pleasure to commandeer a radio programme for you. Moaning bastard. (laughs) John Peel and Kid Jensen quickly became a double act. This is, I believe, the 11th time they've presented Top of the Pops this year. You know, he's become quite a fixture on it. And I'm guessing that, you know... Practically everyone from Britain who's listening to this podcast went through a John Peel phase at some part in their life. So uh, when was yours? Mine would have been a little bit after this, to be honest. It would have probably been the following year that I did I did start mm. staying up late and listening to it. And, you know, things like hearing the Jesus and Mary chain for the first time and having my mind blown. Um, but <clears throat> uh, I, I think um, I loved him as a Top of the Pops presenter first around this time uh, because... Mm. And it's a perfect example of, of something that I loved then and, and I find really aggravating now, I've got to be honest. Mm. He, I, lo- mm. I think what I loved about him then was that he's very kind of subversive and irreverent and sarcastic about pop. And that now is exactly what I hate about it when I, when I look back <laughs> at it. Um, mm. and, and also just the kind of veneration of John Peel. I, I think it's a curious thing because without going into details here, that there, there, there are certain things he, he reveals, uh, particularly about his his life in America in his autobiography, which if they were more widely known, um, he might be seen in the same light as some of the, uh, the, the now less, uh, you know, the, the, the more shamed uh, mm. presenters, shall mm. we say. Mm. Mm. But he gets a pass, doesn't he? Yeah. From so many people. And, and you want, you have to wonder why. I think, I think I was actually, yeah. he's got, he's got a Jimmy Page card, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, this, it's interesting Simon says that at the time he liked it and now he's aggravated by it um, I think I was aggravated by it at the time basically because I, uh, uh, you know watching it with your parents um, my parents loved John Peel and loved his sarcasm about pop because they were basically there yeah. to kind of take the piss anyway so it was kind of like another mm. grown up there and it used to anger me massively there would have been a period <laughs> of course after that when I like Simon I started listening to Peel Perhaps obviously a few years later than Simon, around about 87, I think I started listening to Peel. And, you know, he blew my mind mm. in a lot of ways with a lot of the things he played. And an exemplary sort of thing of playing just music off the beaten track and introducing you to, to new things. Just, But for me, equivalent to Peel was Annie Nightingale yeah. at that time. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, Annie Nightingale, especially because she had a show on a Sunday night after the charts. So, you know, you pause it after the charts you tape and I would still carry on you know with Annie occasionally unpausing my record button to record things yeah. that just just grabbed me and she introduced me probably to more amazing music than actually Peely did um but it is interesting the way he he just gets that pass because because he's on our side do you know what I mean he's he's on the indie yeah. side of things and consequently he kind of he gets a pass for like Simon says Behaviour that is the equivalent to, to more um, disreputable people like Savile, etc. Less consistent with it, but certainly mm. in the autobiography, some pretty horrible things come out. Yeah, and also yeah. His, his constant referral to his wife as the pig and stuff like that. <clears> I mean, <throat> I, I know it's it was all just part of part of his shtick, but there was there was that little trace of that in Peely, I think. 
Yeah, mm. you're absolutely right. But you know, yeah, by the same token, I I can't deny that there were there are many times that I'd hear a track on his show and I would go into Cardiff the next Saturday with whatever yeah. pocket money I scraped together to Spiller's Records, you know, which was the oldest uh, continually operating record shop in the world. And and uh, if they didn't already have it, they would order it for me. And that's kind of how I grew my, I suppose, the sort of alternative wing of my record collection. But like mm. Neil says, I agree, actually. People like Annie Nightingale, also Janice Long, uh, who was also, yeah. she, was quite yeah, often, yeah. she was quite often a John Peel sidekick on Top of the Pops. Um and whoever, even Kid Jensen, whoever else was doing that kind of early evening slot on the radio, probably um, opened my mind to more stuff than than, than Peel would have. Um, mm. uh, can I just say you you mentioned the um, the opening credits with the um, the the Christmas '83 font. Um, just I, yeah. I I do like these opening credits, and I'm talking about the kind of regular mm. non Christmassy version of it with with the flying mm. coloured vinyl and the spinning TV screen and yeah. all that and yellow pearl um, and that it 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 is as iconic for me as the '70s whole lot of love cre- credits perhaps more yeah. perhaps more yeah, so yeah, yeah. really because it was more more my time and um, when when we cut to the studio I I do like the Christmas '83 font on the big screen um, made <laughs> up of parallel lines it's like it's been printed. Yeah. out of a primitive um printer with you know you know the, those printers you'd have and the paper would come out in this constant roll with with holes on the side that with perforated <laughs> strips yeah. with little holes it's like like that kind of font and um yeah i, I don't know it's just, it's it's a really sort of pleasing nostalgia hit just to see that font apart from anything else uh, i think simon's yeah. dead on in that these titles and that theme tune for top of the pops that for me is top of pops um, yeah, the, uh, not just the, if I remember Top of the Pops, it's this theme sheet and those flying records exploding. Um, of course, absolutely. Yeah. And the slight start of kind of crap computer animation um, being on there mm. because uh, I was on about my route around town. Of course, a vital stop in the route around town was popping into Dixon's and going on like yeah. a BBC or a Dragon computer and typing yeah. 10 print fuck off, 20 yes. go to 10. That was a vital thing <laughs> yes. uh, as part of the route around town, yeah. <laughs> of course. I mean, as far as as far as John Pilgers for me, uh, my phase would have been the late 80s because I was, it was this point in my life where I was trying to hear as much hip-hop as possible mm-hmm. and, and we didn't have any pirate stations in the area. So I'd have to sit through a lot of crap or what I thought was crap just hopefully to hear something that would, would do my it's head It's funny in. that, isn't it? Because so, like, yeah, a, a lot of his kind of core indie audience would have the exact opposite view. They, they, they'd exactly, be listening for, yeah. for, you know, Bogshed and Stump and stuff like that. And, and then he'd, he'd play a hip-hop yeah. record. They'd be like, what is this bollocks? You know, or, or uh, reggae <laughs> yeah. records as well. Quite often he'd play. Uh, of and, course, and yes. really piss of off the, re- uh, the listenership. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, to, to me, his show was a complete lucky bag of randomness. Mm. And that was, you know, and when you do, and when you do have such a seemingly random element to your playlist, you know, things are going to hit. And you're, you always remember the things that, you know, that you like over the things you don't like. And, and you know, you, you know, you weren't going to have to listen to fucking Duran Duran every yeah. hour. And, uh, and example, also, but, the, uh, Price you mentioned earlier here in the Mary Chain for the first time, I bet Simon actually remembers the precise moment and the room that he was in. I do, you I know, and, you and everything about it. And and that's the thing with moments of radio revelation. I think um, I can still remember things that I heard in '86, 
uh, on Peel or on Annie Nightingale. And I'm, I'm, I'm not just remembering the song. I'm remembering being there and your mouth just mm. kind of dropping in a sense. This kind of bloody hell, I fucking love this song and I've got to seek this out tomorrow. So Peel was yeah. really important for that. I've got to give him his due in that regard. Um, mm. But yeah, um, the rest of it needs a bit more. But I think the indie, the, the sort of... it. The official version of indie history, in a sense, needs to address what what was bad about Peel as well as what was great well, about um, it. Well, Julie Birchall, um, in her Guardian column, God, it must be 20 years ago now or something like that, mm. um, wrote yeah. a real kind of character assassination of, of Peel um, and, and went into this stuff in quite a lot of depth. And she got no end of shit for it. And, yeah. of course, partly yeah. Birchall was doing what Birchall does, sort of taking a sacred cow and just being provocative and, uh, and, mm. and all of that. But... I read it and it did sort of open my eyes a little bit. Oh, bloody hell, you know, I didn't know that mm. stuff at that point. Um, but yeah, um, just going back to what, what Neil was saying about knowing exactly where you were. Um, hearing, uh, it would have been Never Understand, I think, by the Jesus Mary Chain on, on the John... No, actually, it would have been their first single on Creation, Upside Down, on, right. on the John Peel show. Uh, and I was in my room listening on a sort of tinny clock radio in the dark... Um, and probably, you know, <laughs> thinking I really should switch off and go to sleep. But then this record comes on and the feedback screeching through my radio. I thought there was something wrong with the radio, first of all. And then <laughs> I just, I realised that was the song. And with this kind of Beach Boys, Ramones type melody underneath this unholy screeching. And I, I thought it was Satan coming through my speak. I, I was scared. <laughs> I was genuinely scared yeah, of yeah. a record. And that had a really profound effect on me. And the thought that you could have this beautiful pop song, but also this terrifying screeching noise coming over the top. I was mm. totally sold on that. And I, I went out and, and bought whatever I could buy them after that. Mm. So yeah, um, I, you know, uh, we, we can go back and forth all day on this that, you know, yeah, he wasn't a perfect human being, but fucking hell, well, who he is? really, yeah, yeah. And, and well, <laughs> you know, I, um, but, but but you know what I'm saying that that, that uh, with, without quite giving him the Jimmy Page pass or the Phil Spector pass or any of that, mm. that, that some things are just a fact, and the fact is that he probably turned more people on t- to more sort of mind blowing music than than anyone else at Radio One over a period of decades. So got to yeah. give him that. Yeah, I mean, there will be people listening to this now who will not have one word said against him. Mm. You know, being into mm. John Peel is 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 a badge of your you know alternativeness and yeah. the fact that you really know about music, man. Yeah, and these people will trot out the it was a different time thing for mm. Peely, but absolutely won't for for any of the rest of them. So yeah. slight hypocrisy going on there. Yeah, I mean, as far as his presentation style on top of the pops goes, I mean, I I liked it then, and I'm not upset about it now because if I'd have been like you know, a, a few years younger or, you know, really into the big bands of that time, uh, he would have pissed me right off. But mm. as a 15-year-old, his style came off to me as, look, you know and I know that most of the songs on here are cat shit. So, like, you know, <laughs> let's get on with it and maybe something good will pop up at some point. Yeah, and I, I think as as a double act... um the reason they work is that Kid Jensen is a, is a pretty good sport in allowing himself to be the kind of straight man of it. You know, because, yes. mm. you know, in, in every way, Kid Jensen is presented as kind of Mr. Square, Mr. Normal. Oh, yeah. Um, you, you can tell they genuinely like each other, but yeah. um, Jensen allows himself to, to, to be set up as the kind of um, Sid Little, if you like, of, of the duo. I always look at them and I just think they would make a great ITV detective show, those two. <laughs> what a double, you know. 
Helium the kid. You know, <laughs> yeah. some crime's gone on. And uh, Jensen goes off in the woods and ends up wrestling with a bear while um, <laughs> while Peel sits in his study uh, examining um, fall lyrics for clues and stuff like that. It'd be great. His sort of denigration of pop music in his presentation and the way he rolls his eyes and stuff like that, there's a slight sense now watching it where I think, yeah, you're being a bit smugly superior to pop there, really. Um, but... I think it, it's just because I've forgotten exactly how isolated and strange that was on top of the pops. Because what we'd get week on week was Noel Edmonds and Steve Wright and Bruno Brooks. And it was also just remorselessly positive. And, you know, just having that little note of sourness. I mean, especially if I was a grown up watching it in 83... I yeah. bloody loved that yes. kind of that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, my dad it, it loved it. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, my dad loved did. it, and my mum loved it as well. I was a little bit more resentful because I loved pop, and I didn't like it seeing being you know taken the piss out of. Yeah, yeah. I think my favourite John Peelism on top of the pots is when he did the chart rundown, and he said the heavy ethnic sound of modern romance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Peel and Kid are surrounded by the kids who are waving massive red flags about wearing the same party hats they've been wearing all year. Peel comments that they've really dressed up for this week's show. He's being sarcastic because Peel's wearing a red shirt with a navy blue suit jacket while Kid wears a patterned jumper which would have passed as festive at the time. I mean, that no way is no, that a Christmas jumper in 2017, is just it? Just a jumper. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just a jumper. You know, even then in the 80s, at the height of um, the extravagance of the early 80s, you know... Christmas jumpers really weren't doing it, were they? No. 1983 was a real year of knitwear, actually. I remember knitwear in 83, 84 was, was mm. suddenly um, really weirdly cool among young people. Usually grey and black, black and grey kind of patterns. Burgundy was massive round our way. Burgundy as well, yeah. We yeah. had, at this time, they made the huge mistake of uh, at my school of deciding what the uh, school uniform should be, and they let the kids decide. <laughs> and... Uh, Burgundy won hands down. So there'll be kids in fucking 1998 going, why the fuck are we wearing this horrible colour? Why are we dressed as Chaz Smash in, in the One Step Beyond video <laughs> yes, or something? Yes, yeah. because of your ancestors. I mean, it could have been worse, man. If it had been, you know, a few years later, they'd be wearing all kinds of pastel shit. Cricket jumpers as well at this time as well. With, yes. Uh, on the back yes. with the kind of sleeves over your shoulders. What a fucking horrible look that was. Peel does some jiving with a faux excited expression as Kid introduces Merry Christmas Everybody by Slade. We've covered Slade in chart musics 8 and 9, so we won't go into details, but after their renaissance in 1981, they had a poor 1982, releasing two singles that stalled in the early 50s. However, their latest single, My Oh My, is currently at number 2, and this re-release of the 1973 Christmas number 1 has jumped from number 35 to number 20. It's already been in the charts before. It went to number 70 in 1980, number 32 in 1981, and number 67 in 1982. This song might as well be called Noddy's Pension. <laughs> First of all, My Oh My. Yeah. Number um, could have been nearly the Christmas number one this year. It's um, almost Cartesian in its philosophical insights. I believe in woman, My Oh My. So yeah, he's he's acknowledging the existence of um, another gender. So as a, as it might be the magazine though, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he, that, he might have got some really good recipes in yeah. knitting patterns off it. This really 
changed his look up. You know what, though? Um, I'd forgotten until we watched this episode that um, Slade did have such a huge hit in the, mm. in this year. It completely slipped it's my massive. mind. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's ama- amazing. They did have this kind of career renaissance for about two years in the early 80s. Yeah, and not only that, but the previous month, um, Quiet Riot's version of Come On, Feel The Noise was number five in America. Jesus, yeah. Yeah, yeah they were having it. Yeah. Did you remember, My Oh My, at all, anything about it until you, you played it or heard it um, in preparation for the show? Because I don't remember it at all, even though it's number two. Didn't remember no, the chorus, I don't. Didn't I'm, I'm a little bit older. I, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, totally. I only had to see the title and it was going yeah, through my head instantly. It's it's not the best, is it? And it's not as good as My Oh My by Sad Cafe, which is a different song altogether. But yeah, <laughs> they're Rolling Stones pastiche, but anyway. But this song, I mean, by now it's the official national anthem of Christmas, isn't it? Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm more of a wizard man myself. I, I take that, uh, you know, stance on, on, the, on the big Christmas hits of the 70s. But... Um, Christmas, I think, in general, is still to this day a very 1970s holiday, isn't it? Mm, so, that, yes. so that even in 1983, um, we're looking back at songs like this, thinking, ah, oh, those are the proper Christmas songs. And mm, yeah. um, I don't think until Wham! the following year, um, anybody had really done a Christmas song and nailed it since the 70s. Yeah. I, unless I'm forgetting mm. something. I mean, you had Paul McCartney, Wonderful Christmas Time, stuff like that. But um, yeah. I mean, the only other uh, the only other Christmassy song in the charts that's not novelty shit is 2,000 Miles by The Pretenders. Which is mm. wonderful, by the way. It's a wonderful yes. record. But it's, it's not a sort of sing-along, arms-in-the-air thing like this. Um, no. I, and w- one thing I notice about this, you know, you, you say it's Noddy's pension... He's really going for it in this performance. Yeah. There's there's, yeah, there's, is, there's, yeah. there's no hint yet of ingratitude or of it being an albatross for him. He's he's yeah. really really mm. going for it. He he acts out the the bit where you know the granny's up and rock and rolling with the rest. He does yeah, a little, little bit of the twist, you know. Um, yeah, and uh, it's number twenty in the charts, but they don't mind because they're number two with my oh my. And and like you say, yeah. you know, they they probably know that that this song is 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 gonna um, you know basically pay all their mortgages that. One exception actually being Dave Hill, because um, Jim Lee and Noddy Holder, I think, wrote the song. Dave Hill um, didn't have a writing credit. I don't think he had writing credit on any or many of, of uh, Slay's oh, records. So, um, and that must sting him. But um, Dave Hill's auto- <laughs> autobiography, um, it's not been out long, I think, it's called So Here It Is. That's Dave Hill's autobiography. Um, right. And he is still touring with a rump Slade. Um, which I which I've, mm. I've I've seen and uh, they're just awful. The uh, the fake <laughs> the, the the pretend naughty holder oh. just doesn't give oh, it man. the required welly that you've got to give it. <laughs> but but yeah, on on this they they seem totally. You watch this performance and you don't see a band who um, are visibly thinking, oh fucking hell, not this song again. They're they're really happy to be doing it and yeah. Um, the, uh, this weird performance with the uh, sexy mm. Santa dancer behind them and some and irrelevant coloured oh. umbrellas, which I didn't quite oh. get. Also, I, I love the fact that Jim Lee, the bassist, yes. looks like he's in a different band. He's, he's wearing a black leather, black leather jacket and black <laughs> yes. leather trousers and a sort of heavy metal looking T-shirt. Yeah, he wants to be in, wants to be in uh, Maiden, doesn't he? Yeah, he thinks he's in Judas Priest or something, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. I think um, there, was a, there was a chart music podcast um, where somebody, it might have been Taylor, it might have been Simon, um, introduced this concept of convivial that's music. That's me, that's me, yeah. And, and that... Yeah, mm. and I think that's exactly what this is. To me, this is Christmas, this song. Um, to me, actually, yeah. it edges Wizard. 
There's my, 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 one of my favourite Christmas songs, in fact. And, and I need to hear it at Christmas. It makes me feel, it's the first thing to make me feel Christmassy at Christmas. It's kind of like, it's like the arrival of the Christmas Radio Times <laughs> in the house. It's one of those just things yes. that makes Christmas start. And it's just, it is like a national anthem of Christmas. You're right, Al. It's just everyone's Christmas is contained within the lyrics of this song. Um, and Noddy, yeah. as, as, um, as Pricey said, He's still on this performance. He's totally just a beguilingly strange pop star, I think. Untarted up. And just a mm. massive, massive voice that's so likeable. And, you know, there's yeah. things about this record, like, you know, the shout at the end when he shouts, it's Christmas. For me, yeah. that is when Christmas starts. And and, and, it, it, and it's waiting yes. for that. And, uh, you know, it's one of those records, you know, like Whole Lot of Rosie by ACDC. Mm. It's a great test in rock clubs. <laughs> for people who actually know music or not, mm. because there's a bit at the end where there's a false stop-start thing. And 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 if you get it wrong and you're moshing in a rock club, you look like a right fucking idiot who doesn't mm. know ACDC properly. Um, uh, sl- this record is like that, um, because y- you're going to shout it's Christmas, probably before Noddy does it. He holds it yes. back for a good long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yes. and, and when it when it when it comes in, yeah, for me this record is Christmas, and and actually lyrically, it's just a lovely song about what a British Christmas is all about. Neil, I can think. I ask you about that? Because um, you're yes. you're, you've, yeah. you're often um, a club DJ, aren't you? You've you certainly you've, you've certainly done a fair bit of it, and and and, yeah, and, yeah. and me too. And as a as a DJ, yeah. um, you do become aware of certain songs where people go early with the singing. They'll always they'll, they'll get it wrong, and that that's one of them. Tell <laughs> yeah, me yeah, that it's yeah. Christmas in uh, in Slade. Um, another one that I I always <laughs> notice is. Um, Talking heads, psycho killer. People can't wait to get to the and they go really early with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, 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 it's probably a great list to be made of songs where yeah. people go early. But yeah, this is totally yeah a classic one of those. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely one of them. Like like you, I'm also slightly annoyed by the two women on stage. Oh, I don't they know what they're doing. Right off, the two members of Zoo who look like page three girls. One in a Santa micro skirt and thigh length boots, a position behind Noddy and Dave Hill, making out that they're in the band. Yeah, uh, Slade don't mm. have female backing singers, Doc. No, you're not needed. They're not needed. And and the asymmetricality uh, 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 of it annoys me. Yes. On one side of the stage. <laughs> that bugs me. But but deeper than that, I th- I think you know you, you know when me and Pricey were talking about the ninety four episode mm. and how the crowd have actually become an annoyance in yeah. a way. Um, and, and have really become part of the spectacle. You can't really see individuals. I yeah. think this episode is kind of, the, I'm not saying this episode, but 83 Top of the Pots is kind of the start of that, I think. Yeah. Um, you don't really get to see much of the crowd until the very end of the episode, I would As say. As individuals. As individuals, yeah, yeah absolutely. And you, we, 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 it's a big, big show, lots of shouting and lots of just, shouting and kind of woos and all of that you yeah. know that, that was so annoying in the 94 episode is starting here i know it's a christmas episode i'm not expecting them to stand in solemn silence or anything but the the crowd's behavior seems utterly unrelated to the music and and it's the start of that that, that would reach its pinnacle um, can, can I just say something that, that i would have found i would have found yeah, really I'm, exciting watching this episode um is the fact that uh, it's what the twenty second of December, and it's basically a normal top of the pops. Yeah. yeah, it's got some Christmas trimmings to it, but the knowledge mm, it, that it, we're watching really this top is. of the pops, and just three days later, there's going to be another one. The, what double instalment? That's you know yeah. already you'd be thinking, okay, I can put up with 
here in Slade today because you know um, just I can annoy my relatives by having you know by breaking up the middle of Christmas Day uh, by by watching uh, the yeah. look back on on the year. Yeah, you feel spoiled. The most thrilling moment of this entire episode actually is towards the end. It comes upon the screen. Christmas top of the pops, yes. two p.m. Christmas day, yeah. and that yeah. was that was Christmas for me. That two p.m. top of the pops, man. Were, were, that, were that you was, allowed to watch I, it? I got so excited because, like, oh there, yeah, there, of there course, were, there yeah. Were, I mean, I'm not going to say fights over the remote control because we didn't have a remote control. It wasn't that snazzy in those days. <laughs> but there was certainly a thing in my house where on Christmas Day itself, um, my particularly the elderly uh, members of my family thought it was really rude and bratish of me to want to watch top of the pops when we should all be sitting around playing charades or something like that right but but I mean the hypocrisy of it we all had to stop and sit quietly while the queen did the queen's speech yeah 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 yeah. Christmas day was 2pm top of the pops about 5.30 Disney time those were the two peaks of Christmas day but Christmas top of the pops man it was all about that yeah the zoo girls get in with a band at the end as if they're members of Slay which I didn't approve of I mean, I, I, as a 15-year-old, I, I would have been perving <laughs> at them big style, but it would have been, look, no. I hated no. Zoo. I, I hated their faces. Um, I hate... No, because I, I mentioned... Sorry to keep going on on past episodes, but I mentioned in the past that a look from a keyboard player in Shack Attack put me against that yes. band for three years. Zoo were just doing it on a weekly yeah. fucking basis. Their joy was my despair. Hmm. <laughs> Mm. But, but but the great thing about Slade is that they actually yeah, don't give yeah. a fuck. They they make yeah. no eye contact mm. or any kind of contact. And at the end, the, the the two girls from Zoo are having to glom themselves onto the band <laughs> while they just carry on doing their thing. And, you know, Dave Hill's more interested in kicking a balloon out of the way with his very mm. pointy cowboy boots than actually going, hey, look at me with this saucy well, yeah. madam. Uh, anyone on stage... Anyone on, on stage with Slade, I mean, we're not going to be looking at you. We're going to be looking at Noddy and we're going to be looking at Dave. If Slade are on stage, you're going to be yeah. looking at them. They are utterly pointless and mm. shouldn't be on there. So because next week's chart was released over Christmas, everything stayed the same. But the week after, Merry Christmas, everyone, stayed at number 20 and then dropped 63 places yes. to number 83. That is how it should be. Yeah, yeah. totally. However, their next single, Run, Run Away, would get to number seven in March of 1984. That was their, their big Christmas. country rip-off. Yes. Run, Run Away, yeah, oh. they're suddenly trying to be big country. Anyway, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone, would be released 17 more times over the years, getting to number 22 in 2006, number 32 in 2008, and this January got to number 30. I mean, fucking hell, are people... Buying the record and then chucking it out in January like Christmas trees, and then oh, it's nearly Christmas. We better get a get a new Slade record in. that that record went straight to number one. Slade also in the charts, of course, at number two with My Oh My. At number three, it's Culture Club. Here they are with Victims. Take a ride 
into unknown pleasure Feel like a child on a dark night Wishing there was some kind of heaven after the camera swings round to find Kid on some scaffolding festooned with tinsel, he points out that Merry Christmas Everybody went to number one ten years ago. Fuck it. And that would have been a century, wouldn't it? In pop time. Absolutely. And, and you know, if, if Noddy would have done the granny dance in 73, it would have been a young person taking the piss. When he does it in this episode, it, it, he looks like an old bloke dancing, you know. <laughs> and he introduces the next song, which is Victims by Culture Club. Formed in London in 1981 when Close Seller and Blitz Club regular George O'Dowd, who provided backing vocals for Bow Wow Wow under the name Lieutenant Lush, decided to form his own band, Culture Club released two records that failed to chart in early 1982 before their third single, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, made it to number one in October of that year. They went on to have three top ten hits on the bounce throughout 1983, and this single, the third one from the LP Colour by Numbers, is the follow-up to Karma Chameleon, which got to number one in September of this year and stayed there for six weeks, becoming the biggest selling single of the year. The song is about the cups of tea George was having with his drummer John Moss, which was unknown to the general public at the time, and the show in the video, which was directed by Godly and Cream and features a 54-piece orchestra and choir. I think it's 54-piece. That's, that's how many I counted. And it's up one place this week from number four to number three. I mean, the first thing we have to say is that they, they crashed the video. Yeah, I didn't like that at all. When it's over a minute in, which is d- deeply unfair. I mean, presumably they've played it in full, um, like the week before, or a couple of weeks before, have they? I don't You've know. You've missed the slow build-up to the um, slightly less slower crescendo of the song, isn't it? <laughs> it's an amazing video. I mean, it's a health and safety nightmare as well. It, yes, it's... it is. <laughs> It looks perilous, do you know what I mean? Fucking I was watching is, it yeah. and I was actually fearful for, uh, you know, obviously I know, that, but it, it's one of those, vid- it, it, it's like a pop accident waiting to happen. Um, it, yeah, well, so, well, set the scene for us, Neil. Tell us well, what's, what's going, going on. on. What, what alarmed me the most was George, float, not floating, obviously, he's on some kind of thing that's carrying him around, but he's going in midair. It's on a, uh, on cherry, a cherry picker. picker, that's the word. And and it's incredibly high up, this 54-piece orchestra. Mm. Like, you know, at least 50 feet yeah. in the air. And and it, it you know, the famous pop pop music accidents in videos, you know, Michael Jackson setting his hair on fire and stuff like that. This yeah. is a, you know, a contender that that could have happened, thankfully, nothing did. But um, yeah, I, I was just uh, on the edge of my seat throughout. Um, just thinking, Christ, that looks dangerous. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, um, all the orchestra members are on these very kind of like thin but extremely tall sets of mm, steps. It's fantastic video, really eye popping, and I love the way, um, sort of, I think two thirds through, it goes to this really bizarre kind of balloon imagery, um, with really, really vivid colours. I don't remember the video watching it much at the time, but it's a fantastic video. It really is. Simon, at this point, bore George's, he's practically a national treasure, isn't he? He is, and I was obsessed. Um, he was, mm. he was an angel to me. Um, he mm. was like some kind of, <laughs> some kind of fairy godmother, but not in the kind of panto way. He, he, he genuinely seemed like this kind of, uh, this, this, this entity from another realm who was, looking out for me and who sort of somehow um you know you, you get that thing that, that the pop stars understand you you, you suddenly think oh my mm. god they get me yeah I, I really really had that with george and it wasn't about 
whether he's gay or straight or any of that stuff, but it was that he was showing a different way of being a man. Uh, mm. That that that's the way I, mm. I looked at it. Um, I didn't think of him as kind of drag acts, drag queen. I didn't necessarily even think of him as androgynous, though clearly he was. It it was, and, and th- this is something that that I I, I really. Um, found and, and looked for in a lot of my pop heroes at the time, just showing a different way of being a man. Mm. Um, and, and that's why this video, the, the lavishness of it, and, and I can't separate the video from the song in my head, unlike Neil. For me, as soon as I hear those pianos, I'm totally seeing him in that yeah. that black hat floating around on the cherry picker. But it was really apt that he was floating amongst you know, heavenly choirs and stuff like that, because he was angelic to me. Um and uh, oh, Helen Terry, when she comes in, by the way, I I loved her. She's all over Color by Numbers, the second Culture Club album, which I I played to death that year. And um, what a singer she was! And then then at the end, you get John Peel saying, "Boy George is the creature from the Black Lagoon." Oh fuck yeah, off! Man. Yeah, that pissed me off. No end. What was your first point of contact with Boy George? Well, it was, "Do you really want to hurt me?" Um, and on top of the pops, uh, well, I guess yeah, it would have been, and, and it, it was it was that classic thing of uh, going to school the next day and and people saying, "God, I really fancy that girl from Culture Club last night." Yeah, and and, and me being a bit more clued in, um, having to say, uh, "Actually, guys, <laughs> I've, I've got some breaking news for you." Mm. <laughs> um, but I I, I wasn't told. I mean. You know, now I think "Do You Really Want to Hurt Me" is a fantastic record. Yeah. I wasn't necessarily ready for it at the time; wasn't totally sold on them. But it was a few of the subsequent singles, like "Time Clock of the Heart" and "Church of the Poison Mind," which I just absolutely fell in love with, and and mm. sort of um, and quickly jumped on the bandwagon. And he became an absolute hero to me. There, there was me. You know how you you share your pop heroes sometimes with with your close friends. Yeah, there was yeah. me and one other kid in my class called Roger Neal. Um, and and the the two of us had Culture Club in common, and that was our thing. And um, the following year, eighty four, I kind of I don't know if, if ran away from home is putting it too dramatically, but we went up to uh, Birmingham NEC to see Culture Club, having mm. bought tickets in Cardiff Spillers, without any real idea of how we were going to get home afterwards. Yeah, because um, the trains had stopped running. We ended up sleeping on the platform at um, Bristol Parkway, I think, halfway home. And all of this, my mum must have been going nuts, wondering where I was. Um, well, you didn't tell that, her you were going to Birmingham to see Boy George. I, I don't know. I, I probably did, but I probably said, "Oh, it's fine. I'll be back around midnight or something uh, like." Something uh, stupid do you like think that. she was more alarmed at the Boy George bit or the <laughs> Birmingham bit? I think, I think both. I mean, certainly um, when I had Boy George pictures over my wall, um, my mum said to me one day, she kind of confronted me and said, "Simon." Are you gay? And uh, and I, I remember being quite flattered by that, and I and I deliberately didn't answer. I just sort of laughed at the question. You, you were enigmatic, <laughs> was you? I, I enigmatically laughed at the question and went back upstairs to stare at my boy George. Pictures. Did you say, "Mum, I'd really like a cup of tea right now"? <laughs> well played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and, Simon, uh, so, so Simon, how did you express your uh, support of Culture Club? Was it was well, it I, a, was it a badge, or yeah. did you go further than that? In, in did you some do ways, did you do the full Michelle Fowler in Grange Hill thing? <laughs> Brilliant, yeah, yeah. I actually play that clip uh, of uh, Susan <laughs> Tully in Grange Hill. What was her character called? Suzanne. 
Suzanne Ross, was it Suzanne Ross or something? Something like that, yeah. In Grange Hill, where, where she turns up dressed as Boy George and gets a telling off from Mrs. McCluskey. Well, this is after um, she'd left, you see, so McCluskey yeah, couldn't yeah. do anything to her, apart from yeah, telling yeah. her to fuck off out of her school because she don't belong here anymore, of course. But, but um, you know, I, I've, that, I, I play that clip at my, at my 80s club, Spellbound. We, we play it on the kind of video reel. And um, yeah, it's, it's a great moment. I actually saw, and we're going way off topic, but I saw Mrs. We McCluskey. We never go way off topic. <laughs> yeah, sure. I... I I, I saw actual Mrs. McCluskey um, not long ago, about a year ago, Good in Lord. a charity shop in Brighton. Wow. And I, I really wanted to go up and, and tell her that I thought she was great, but also I was scared she might tell me off. Yeah. <laughs> she's Mrs. McCluskey. <laughs> but she she was kind of like harsh but fair. She was kind of yeah. kind hmm. headmistress, I think, so I probably would have been all right. Um, but no, I, I didn't I didn't dress up in, in the full Boy George thing. My, my one concession was that um, I got a kind of... Um, a day glow green little bit of ribbon and tied it in my ponytail because it wasn't a ponytail, more like a rat tail. Yes, and um, because to even admit to any kind of effeminacy or, or love of mm. effeminate things at yeah. my school would have got you a kick in. Yeah, so I was being quite bold by even admitting that I like Culture Club. Yeah, and um, so I was basically dressing like Paul Weller, um, <laughs> what you know, using sort of catalogue clothes from Melandi of Carnaby Street yes. we mentioned previously. Yeah, but. I was growing my hair out a little bit and tying this this ribbon in it as a sort of concession to how kind of well we wouldn't have called it metrosexual in those days, but you know how 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 cool I was with with my own sexuality and my own gender and all of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean at my school, I mean it was really weird because everybody loved "Do You Really Want to Hurt Me" because it was a lovers' rock song, and mm, you know mm. everyone was into that kind of like soft reggae kind of thing. I mean there was a time when I mean. There was a period where there was three songs, three songs in a row that were number one, which were kind of like light reggae. Uh, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, Pass the Duchy, and uh, Red Red Wine. So, you know, everyone loved Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, but only girls displayed a, a liking of Culture Club. It I had a re- not- Yeah, I had a revelation about Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, which I've always liked, but I heard it on um, Free Radio 80s the other morning. Mm. And it is just, it's one of the greatest Lovers Rock songs ever. It's brilliant, um, isn't it? It's just a brilliant, brilliant record. And, and George's vocal performance on it is just astonishing. Mm. Um, it's such a great record. And, you know, I've heard lots of stories from people who worked in record shops at the time, you know, big, black guys coming in looking for that record and yeah. then when they discover that it's you know <laughs> that it's boy george and culture club kind of not being interested i completely yeah. agree um do you really want to hurt me particularly the, the 12 inch version dub version it's yeah just, uh, yes fantastic um dub 12 inch and um the the other record from that era well a little bit later actually that i compare it to is the word girl by scritty Politi. yes um mm. the, the 12 inch of that yes um, which has got some i think it's got like a, a female uh, MC on it, and yeah. that is a, is a beautiful dub, twelve inch as well. Mm. Um, and yeah, um, you're right. There, there was uh, almost after the the ska revival had had died out, we we did have this kind of reggae thing going on with, as you mentioned, Culture Club and Musical Youth, and um, I suppose there were things like uh, maybe OK Fred by Errol Dunkley was a yeah. couple years earlier. But but there, but the point is there there were proper reggae records in the charts that. It was. It wasn't just sort of white guys from city yeah. of culture, Coventry. No. Yeah. <laughs> and just just going back on what we mentioned before, isn't it funny that the two things that drag you out of your hometown at a certain age are either football or pop music? Yeah. Um, you know, the first time I left Nottingham was to take me Christmas or my birthday money and go down to London and go to the the shop, the shoe shop in Camden where Madness 
got all the Doc Martins and that, and then go down the to Carnaby yeah. Street. Yeah, I mean, I got a nice pair of uh, Oxblood uh, loafers from that place when I was like 14. Um, yeah, that's actually um, immortalised in their film, Take It or Leave It, isn't yes. it? That little yeah. shop, yeah. yeah. And it was exactly the same as it was in the film. It was, oh, yeah. it was brilliant. And then, you know, the only other times I'd leave Nottingham was to go down to Leicester to De Montford Hall to see the Redskins or or down to <laughs> Birmingham to see Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. So, oh, yeah. That's just down the road for you. I had to travel like, hundreds of miles into England to... Yeah, oh, yeah, another country, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other band, that I mentioned them earlier, that, that made me do that trip to the same venue, actually, to Birmingham NEC was big country and right. I know it's not it's, it's really not cool to admit you like them now but I was so into big country and I, I did the same thing just like bunking off to Birmingham um, to, to see them without any real way of knowing how, how to come home and um, the Colts were the support band right. and I remember wandering around the car park afterwards looking for any bus that was going to Wales think oh you know if I can at least get as far as Cardiff yeah. and um, I remember walking down the gap between two coaches and finding Ian Asprey from the cult having sex with a groupie uh, while while his bandmates looked on and hung around and and I just almost walked right into them and it was this really embarrassing moment and I actually rather just turning around and walking away I said to them "Um, do you know if there's any buses to Cardiff (laughs) 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 and they looked so annoyed with me Um, (laughs) eventually I found one oh man (laughs) but boy George yeah I mean I I think the the general public are are doing a really good job of convincing themselves that he's not gay really it's just a bit of a he's he's just putting it on I I think that you know what Simon was mentioning earlier the day after because that was one of the if not the biggest moment in Top of the Pops in the 80s was do you really want to hurt me on Top of the Pops and the following day it was our Bowie moment wasn't it absolutely yes Starman moment in the playground. I seem to recall not people saying actually, um, oh, did you see that? Uh, you know that hot woman on top of the pops last night. It was more confusion, and it was kind mm. of like, you know, was it a bloke or was it was it a girl? And people who knew once that news started spreading like wildfire. Um, I remember that day really, really palpably. I'm really, really fascinated to hear Pricey talk about Boy George because um, it's interesting the way that. Pop idols, when they really are your idol and they mean things to you, and like Pricey say, they almost take on a role in your life where they're overseeing the decisions you make in a way, like yeah. style decisions. You think, not what would Boy George do, but you know what I mean? You, you, you think about them. Uh, well, the first time I met Pricey, I'm not saying he was like Boy George, but what I mean <laughs> by that is I could see the influence. Uh, and I don't mean, yeah. I don't even mean see, I could hear the influence in a way, in the way that Pricey talked, the humour. Um, I'm sure it's all Pricey himself, but I sort of, I sort of got that slightly the first time I met Pricey that I think Boy George... Did I have the dreadlocks at the time? You might have done, yeah. And that <laughs> might have added to it. But um, Yeah, I had like black dreadlocks and makeup. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, lo- I, I, I loved Culture Club. But in 83, um, I was still... I mean, uh, Pricey was talking about really being into the album in that year. I still wasn't really listening to albums. 83 was a singles year for me still I was still mm. really uh, and it was actually the year I bought my first ever single it couldn't not be more inauspicious it was um, Men at Work Overkill don't ask why I don't know Ooh. why I bought it but, um, but but yeah for me Culture Club were all singles I loved Karma Chameleon and I loved George's description of it in his autobiography it's the kind of record everybody buys but nobody likes 
Um, <laughs> but um, at the time, because I wasn't really listening to the albums, I was just listening to the singles, and I was quite young. I was just getting the surface of Culture Club, in a sense. Um, over time, you know, like like this song... Um, victims. I think at the time I didn't like it. It was perhaps a little bit too grown up for me. And at yeah. the time, I didn't realise that what's vital about Culture Club and what really makes things like Do You Really Want to Hurt Me work is that mix of real smoothness in the sound, but real pain within the lyrics and within the songs, mm. um, which, which oddly, of course, I know now, mirrors the way that the band kind of were, had to present themselves yeah. as a smooth operation, but absolutely tearing yeah. each other apart inside victims is absolutely a really really dark dark song that's hidden in a sense within a really gorgeous lush production i love that line i have the strangest void for you it's it's yes. a really really dark song um but it's it but it occupies the same kind of sound world as almost like a diana ross tune like i'm still waiting or something it's big and epic like that i was wondering if anybody here has heard um which is obviously relevant to victims um the track that was on the culture club compilation uh, called Shirley Temple Moment. Have you heard that? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, that's a real revelation. That's them rehearsing this song, Victims, or trying to get a recording done. But it's just an astonishing document of anger and rage and hatred and the kind of pressures of, of pop. It, it basically <laughs> catches a lot of in-between take conversation between the band. It's not exactly conversation. It's a screaming argument. Uh, it starts oh. off with... Um, uh, you know, Boy George getting in an argument with Roy, I think, um, with the great line, fuck off you spotty fucking heterosexual cunt. And then Roy, <laughs> and then Roy calls him a big nose gay. And it, it gets worse. It gets worse. It gets really angry and furious. And it's, yeah. uh, for me, it's better than, you know, the Sprinkle the Fairy Dust Trogs tape or anything. Um, mm. I was listening to this the other day and it's just an astonishing little, little document of, of the mess, not the mess that band were in, but, um, tough days for them. And, it, and if Shirley Temple moment is anything to go by with such a big lush video, I bet there were some real bloody arguments on that set. Because... Well, there must have been because <laughs> at this point, you know, it's 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 very clear who the uh, important person in the band is. And you hardly see the rest of the band, do you, in this? Yeah, but I mean, you, you say the important person in the band, yes and no, because that... Um... That Shirley Temple moment dynamic, it, um, it kind of it, it was uh, laid bare in that uh, BBC was it BBC Two documentary, yes. BBC mm. Four, a couple of years ago when they had one of their um, occasional reunions. Yeah, and um, they were still bitching with each other. But the thing that became really clear, and I, I actually interviewed them um, a couple of years ago for a thing that didn't run because it was supposed to um, promote a gig at the O2 that got cancelled. Right. But one thing that became clear is that Roy Hay is the real musician in the band. Mm, I'm not right. saying the others can't play, mm. but he's a real... I mean, he does. He, he composes for Hollywood movies and stuff like that, but he's the real multi-instrumentalist who holds the whole thing together. Mm. So it's all very well, you know, uh, George calling him a spotty heterosexual or whatever, mm. but they needed Roy Hay big time. Yeah, but also Roy Hay was definitely much the Trevor Boulder of the band, wasn't he? He, <laughs> did, he never looked comfortable in uh, whatever, they were, whatever clothes they tried to put him in. That is true enough. Yeah. But, and also, you know, as, as, as great as, as the music might have been, and a lot of that is down to Steve Levine, the producer. Mm. Yeah. Incredible work. Um, George is, I mean, they, they'd be nothing without George, not, no. not just visually, but vocally. What a singer oh, George was. Yeah. yeah. People just, I mean, I, I still people think people don't give him enough credit for being one of the great British soul voices. Mm. And 
on that record, Colour by Numbers, as I say, you had two. You had him and Helen Terry. And when the two of them yeah. listened together on tracks like That's the Way I'm Only Trying to Help You and Black Money, it's just astonishing. Mm. Yeah. And um, even on the following album, which you know was, was one of these great 80s cocaine follies where you <laughs> almost hear, hear a band falling apart, uh, waking up with a house on fire, there, there are tracks like uh, Mistake Number 3, which are good enough to have been on Philadelphia Records in, in the 1970s yeah. mm. um, in terms of the, the feel and the production of it. I'd say yeah. Victims is like that. Victims is a great, great sort of, yeah, soul ballad. It's just a lovely, lovely song. Listening to the Shirley Temple moment thing, I think what comes across is they did need George. It, it's very telling what shouted at George. Mm. It, 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 it Things like go to your next party and things like that. Um, you know, and there's a kind of, there's a ganging up to a slight, in yeah. a slight sense of everyone in the band who isn't George against George a little bit. Yeah. But I don't know how intolerable George was being at the time. Um, but yeah, it's, if you get a chance, seek out yeah. Shirley Temple moment yeah. for a snapshot of where. You could imagine he would have been hard work, let's be honest. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. But, I mean, as soon as he opens his mouth and starts singing, it's just yeah, astonishing. Yeah. And you, you've you got a feel for John Moss in this video because not only has he got to stand there at the very apex of the of the fucking orchestral pyramid uh, listening to this song that's about him, he's also got to play a load of kettle drums when the, the sound is of an actual <laughs> drum kit thinking, oh, God, people are going to think I'm going to look right cunt doing this. Uh, what would have happened to the band if the relationship between George and John Moss had got out then? Uh, it, 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 I think at the time uh, it would have killed them. Um, any, yeah. any, you know. Uh, I remember last time I was on Chart Music discussing how Freddie Mercury wasn't gay to anyone apart from my mum. Um, yeah, you know, I, I genuinely at the time were, were com- was completely oblivious to it. It's odd, really, when you think that you know ABBA could make their breakups and their relationships completely public in a sense um, mm. through their songs. So could Fleetwood Mac, but. But with Culture Club, there was never the understanding, I don't think, amongst any of us, including the fans, that George was singing about John. But I'm absolutely no. certain that the tabloids knew, all the papers knew. Mm. But as long as he was playing the game and giving them good value and selling them copies by being, you know, by yeah. being on the front cover, um, they would would sort of keep it quiet. But as soon as that was no longer the case, as soon as Culture Club had faded away, um, they just could not wait to get stuck yeah. in with you know Boy George's yeah. heroin hell and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because round about this time, I think it was was it Color by Numbers where. Um, Boy George gives a credit to John Blake and the Big Value Son. Does he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's I think it's that album. It's definitely one of them. But yeah, I mean, the other thing that needs mentioning, on top of everything else we've spoken about, is that you know this is this was expected to be the nailed on Christmas number one, mm. and it uh, and it mm. didn't happen for them. But the the idea that you you keep your powder dry for the end of the year for for the Christmas number one, it's not really happened yet, has it? How do you mean? Well, let's take the following year, for example. If you take Do They Know It's Christmas out of the equation, in the in the charts uh, a year from now, you've got Wham! Last Christmas. You've got uh, Power of Love by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. You've got Thank God It's Christmas by Queen. Uh, Spandau Ballet, Madonna, Paul McCartney, Human League. They're all in that. They're all in that chart. And it's that's that's some fucking heavy hitters for 1984 yeah, and- in there. 
And I, I suppose um, a lot of those singles would have been at that time standalone, or they were for albums that hadn't yet come out. Whereas Victims yeah. is from a you know it's just an album track that a lot of people already owned. At yeah. this time, we were starting to. I mean, it was always an issue, kind of what was what was um, Christmas number one. But I think we'd lost that umbilicus that it had to be a Christmas song in a sense in '81 with mm. "Don't You Want Me" being number one. It just proved that you know it just proved that a great record could be number one rather than something that was yes. necessarily yeah. Christmas related. So two weeks later, Victims dropped one place to number four and the follow-up it's a miracle also got to number four in march of 1984 victims that's culture club with boy george as the creature from the black lagoon and here comes tears for fear at the head of a queue of tinsel-wearing, pop-crazed youngsters, compares George's black-hatted appearance with the creature from the Black Lagoon and introduces The Way You Are by Tears for Fears. Formed in Bath in 1981 by Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith from the ashes of mod scar band Graduate, fucking plastic mods, Tears for Fears <laughs> were originally called History of Headaches but changed their name when they got into Arthur Yanoff's primal scream therapy nonsense. They were signed to Phonogram Records in late 1981, and after their first two singles fell to chart, their third, Mad World, got to number three in November of 1982. This is their third single of 1983, and the follow-up to Pale Shelter, which got to number five in May of this year. It's been released as a stopgap between their first LP, The Hurting, and the one they're currently working from, Songs from the Big Chair, and it's currently stuck at number 29. They've wisely elected to perform the single in the studio instead of showing the video, which features Roland Orzabal doing improvisational dancing in what can only be described as a bra top. <laughs> it's most unsavoury, it really is. Tears for Fears, I mean, you know, I... When I do the show notes for this, I, I send you a bit, a little bit of prep saying I want to talk about this, I want to talk about that. Tears for Fears, it's like, what the fuck can I say about them? They were that kind of band mm. in 1983 that I didn't like and didn't hate and didn't have any feelings towards whatsoever. I mean, they're, they're essentially a second generation synth group, aren't they? Yeah, and um, I, I think they were similarly ambivalent towards themselves at this point. Um, you mentioned that this song was a stopgap single. And you mentioned mm. it was a follow-up to Pale Shelter. Well, Pale Shelter itself was a reissue at that point when it when it actually yes. charted. So they were taking their time. And um, the sound on this track is a throwback to The Hurting rather than a throw-forward to songs from the big chair because it's got that yeah. synth sound mm. that sounds like a sort of pretend xylophone thing going on. Mm. But they, they look pretty bored, don't they? Um, yes, and, they do, and yeah. It's, it's not, not surprising. It's, it's a bit of a nothing song. Um yeah, I mean, old old uh, Roberto Baggio there on, on lead vocals. He's, he's, not, <laughs> he's, he's, he's not really giving it much, is he? Um, he's not. And, um, no. Th- this song has been kind of unpersoned in a Stalinistic way by Tears for Fears. Now they never. Play, yes, it has. They, they never play it live. Mm. They leave it off all their greatest hits compilations and all of that. That's right. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think it's the only song that they didn't completely write. So I don't know if they're going to. I don't know if they're being minger towards the other songwriters who they've fallen out with or something. Who knows? I think Kurt Kurt said it was the worst thing we've done. Um, That was his praise of the single. I I, I used to find them pretentious, and and, um, I've got nothing against bands, pop groups being clever. In fact, I thrive on, I live for clever pop. But I think they had an unearned sense of of their own cleverness. They thought Mm. they were more, uh, they, they thought they were deeper and more important with with all that stuff you mentioned the primal screen therapy and the kind of pretentious philosophy that they bought into they they had this unearned sense of their own importance that's that's what kind of bugged me about them mm. having said that pale shelter brilliant mad world brilliant but beyond that they're a bit meh. yeah mad world is the one that snagged me and for the you know for the longest time i didn't know what tears for fears looked like because i remember madwell getting the load of radio play before it cracked the charts yeah and before they got on top of the pop so they got in smash hits and i remember being horrified when i finally saw what they looked like <laughs> because what were you expecting well it, i wasn't expecting orzabel i i really objected to his appearance i don't know why and um, they they also see they seem to have they settled into a pattern then of fairly unmemorable singles really i quite like change i guess but with videos all seemingly shot in milton Kings lots of square panes of glass yes. and stuff um but it or Docklands. yeah yeah but it was blatant to me that, that yeah they looked awful and it was really about the hair the hair on on both of the main oh, figures yeah. is terrible and by the time orzabal's got a, a nasty frizz to him uh, yeah, yeah and in, in this performance he looks like miriam margolis in the wind tunnel yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he always reminded me of um david schneider out of the day to day ah yeah 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 Oh, yeah, a yeah, little bit, I yeah. Just, I'm just seeing with a with a big with his head through a big map of Britain and someone <laughs> turning it round. <laughs> I, I mean, in '83, I was hatefully shallow about pop music, and I still am, hopefully, at times. Yeah. But but the hair was was. I mean, they were they were just one of those acts that repulsed me in a sense. Right. And um, the only other comparison I can give is Andy McCluskey from OMD repulsed me as well at the time, yeah. and Roger Daltrey has always repulsed me. <laughs> um, but um, you know, I wouldn't eat a sandwich made by these people. <laughs> But, um, <laughs> that should be, that should leave, be the way we judge they'd leave, yeah. yeah, they'd leave thumbprints in it or something. Do you know what I mean? And, and, yeah, and, and also the rest of the band. No, hang on a minute, Neil. I, I want to go into this. Which which pop groups would you eat sandwiches? This, this is really important. I need to know. Um, like, Who would be what, the, the pop group you think, yeah, I'd definitely eat a sandwich? I, uh, well, there's lots, there's lots of pop groups I'd eat sandwiches from. It's more about the pop groups I certainly wouldn't. And and I think I think the perhaps the one I most definitely, definitely would not is the Thompson Twins. Yes. I would not eat a fucking sandwich made by this. But they look dirty. You know those people who, even if they're clean, just look grubby. Yeah. Um, to me, that's what the Thompson Twins were. And of course, the Thompson Twins, they, you know, they do it as a, as, a, as a community thing. You know, oh, we've got to do equal <laughs> amounts of work. Yeah, which so means that, you've, got yeah. three, you've got three pairs of hands on your sandwich. Yeah, and it'd be like cheese and banana or something. <laughs> I mean, for me, uh, E17... Oh, they just. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I look like the type of lads who'd spend all the time with their hands down their tracksuit bottoms. And you definitely don't want to get involved with a baked potato with them, that's for sure. No, you certainly wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, there wouldn't be any, would there? No, there wouldn't. And, and I think, you know, you you want, say, in a cheese sandwich, Yeah. I personally would like the cheese to be kind of regularly cut yeah. to a thinness. Yeah. Whereas I think E17 would just break it off with that hand <laughs> yes. sort of chunks yeah. in. That would, that would then poke holes in the bread. Yeah. No, no. Not have a sandwich from there. No. I, and as for who I would want a sandwich of, I think the, the women in uh, Brotherhood of Man. <laughs> they make a lovely sandwich, I think. Yeah, yeah, they probably would. With a crescent of crisps. <laughs> yes, definitely a crescent of crisps. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it, it, I think repulsion becomes a part of my pop experience in 83 to a large extent. And looking at the rest of the band, um, who aren't the main two, you know, it's very man at CNA, man at BHS, um, denim shirts, and, and it... You know, it, it, what we're seeing in 83 is that music has gone from the weirdos to the competent musicians. And it creates a mm. sort of tedium around the mainstream that means that any ruptures you get in that from, from here on in, say Pete Burns, you know, become more and more cherishable because there's this fucking go Westy tears for fearsy um, sort of dross of, uh, um, around them. Um, but yeah, yeah. For me, all about the hair, and the hair's terrible. Yes, yeah, certainly post uh, Live Aid, uh, Pete Burns was the one, wasn't yeah, he? Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Basically him and maybe C6 Sputnik briefly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that pisses me off about this performance is that uh, uh, old Roland is wearing a he's wearing a grey vest over a black shirt, which was a, a, a style that was very popular in 1983, and one that I always thought looked absolutely fucking brilliant on women just just really really attractive on women but it looked really shit on men they looked like they were extras in fame grey and black was the colour scheme grey grey, black and, it was. and burgundy yeah. as you mentioned yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I'll tell you who I think defined yeah. um, the aesthetic of 1983 more than anyone else is Paul Young uh, particularly the album sleeve mm. of No Parley, mm. uh, which is yes. kind of burgundy and grey as I remember it and he's wearing this kind of yeah. grey suit with flecks in it and that I mean, basically yes. everything you got from wallpaper in teenagers' bedrooms yeah, to yeah, duvet covers yeah. to everything was because kind of pale grey and burgundy, grey yeah. flecked Burton suits. Um, yeah, slightly yeah. speckled with urine after a trip to the toilet. Um, <laughs> nasty, nasty times. And of course, as always, Zoo at the front reacting to this very doomy song as if it was "Merry Christmas, Everyone" by Shaker, <laughs> and and going woo during the middle ages. It's like, have you not listened to the lyrics, you stupid, stupid <laughs> bastards? And at the end, Kid Jensen says they're going by helicopter to a gig in Pool in Dorset. But the thing is, yeah. that's just how most people in Pool in Dorset normally travel. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very wealthy town. I mean, one of the synth players, I mean, they're, 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 they're backed up. And, and, really. and at this point, it's like, okay, so we use synths, but we're a proper band, trust us. We got look, we got a proper drum kit, 
Um, we've got two other blokes at the side. One of them actually looks like a woodwork teacher. Tears of Fears <laughs> look like they're backed up. They look like they're constipated. It's kind of pained expressions. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, it's a mad world. And if you are listening to this, Tears for Fears, we might sound critical, but we're only trying to help you, Roland. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Thank I, you. Uh, sorry, Al. I have a, a. I play a keyboard in my band, and it's a rolling one. And my bass player has stuck. I only want to help you next to the rolling. Yes. <laughs> Two weeks later, the way you are nudged up one place to number twenty-eight, and will get as high as number twenty-four. The follow-up, Mother's Talk, got to number fourteen in September of nineteen eighty-four, and the follow-up to that, Shout, made it to number four in December of that year, and will get to number one in America. And as we've already mentioned, the band left The Way You Are off their Greatest Hits album, claiming it was their worst song and proof that they changed direction. Oh, and they eventually met Arthur Yanov in the mid-80s, but they felt he'd gone all Hollywood and he kept asking them to do a musical about him. So <laughs> in, terms they, of, in terms of psychologists who had an influence on pop, his, his was the most damaging, I would think. Just uh, nothing but a bad influence on John Lennon. On Primal Scream, which uh, that, Primal yes. Scream's got to be one of the shittest band names ever. And, and a terrible yeah. band as well. And also, Tears for Fears, of course. And also, one of the most mismatched band names when you heard their early stuff, like Velocity Girl, and there's a band called yeah. Primal Scream. You expect to sound like, I don't know, you know, a motorhead yeah. or something, and they, they come out sounding yeah. like the most twee, jangly thing <laughs> in the world. They should have called themselves Scottish Whinge. No, they should have called themselves Leather Trouser Gusset Chafe. <laughs> that was a second album. <laughs> <laughs> for fears who now are going to leave by helicopter for a gig tonight at Bull and Dorset. Good luck, guys. Next up, it's Billy Joel. Uh, tell her about it. This is an old American recreation of a TV variety show. Thank you, Topo Gigio. Now, right here on our stage, BJ and the Affordables. Kid, accompanied by a female member of Zoo who hangs on to his every word, tells us that Tears for Fears are currently being rushed into a helicopter in order to get to their gig in pool, and introduces the next video, Tell Her About It, by Billy Joel. We discussed Billy Joel only last episode in September of 1980, and after a barren period in the UK, he roared back with Uptown Girl, which got to number one in early November of this year, and was still at number one at the beginning of this month, and is still in the charts at number 14. This is the follow-up to that song in the UK, but it was actually the first cut in the US from his latest LP, An Innocent Man, and it got to number one over there in September. We're shown the video, which is set in the Ed Sullivan Theatre in the summer of 1963, with an Ed Sullivan lookalike and also featuring Rodney Dangerfield. And it's up this week from number eight to number seven. I mean, reviving the early 60s was a definite thing in 1983, wasn't it? We've already had Heartache Avenue by Lowell Mason and the Masonettes and You Can't Hurry Jim. Love by Phil Collins. And we've seen Elton try to recreate a 60s show. Now we're seeing it done properly, aren't we? This is what money from an American record company gets you. 
Yeah. Um, Kid Jensen gets his words slightly wrong, doesn't he? He says, this is an old American recreation of a TV variety <laughs> show. I mean, they're the right words, yeah. but in the wrong order. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we've got this um, Ed Sullivan impersonator introducing BJ and the Affordables. Yes. And then uh, we cut to this Lothario in the production gantry hitting on a colleague and blowing cigarette smoke in her face, the sexy devil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I, I've, I've got to admit, I've probably got more notes for this than any other song in the episode. Yeah, so me too. Will... It's a fucking great video, isn't it? It is. And there's an instant uh, instance of that classic music video trope, which is disapproving parents mm. in a living yes. room. So um, tutting at music on the telly while the kids yeah. are, are bang into it. Uh, yeah. but, but mainly, the, the thing is, it's that thing of um, various couples having a communication breakdown. And yes. jo- Joel himself pops up in the middle of them trying to mediate like a rock and roll Jeremy Kyle. <laughs> yes. And, um, but well, bit... more, like, more like a rock and roll Graham out of Jeremy Kyle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, there's one scene, this is the creepiest thing, where Billy Joel delivers pizzas to a slumber yes. party where, yes. where young women yeah. are hanging around in negligees. And, and, um, mm. and I, at, at that point, I scribbled in my notes... Doubtless just about to have a pillow fight and the pillow explodes and there are feathers everywhere in a deleted yeah. scene. But I scribbled yeah. too soon because a few seconds yeah, later, yeah. it actually <laughs> happens. Of course and and the creepiest bit is that Joel lurks in the doorway uh, with his dark glasses on. Billy, we know why you've got your dark glasses on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And I bet there's a hole in that one of those pizza boxes at the bottom. <laughs> You're choosing to see the creepy side of Billy Joel going around and interfering in people's lives. I prefer to see it as he's the representative of music reaching out and changing people's lives for the better. Yeah, that that shut you up, didn't it? I mean, this video is—I think it's fucking brilliant. It's just—it's just loads of people seeing this new song and going batshit over it. And uh, you know, he's—he's he's basically acting out the lyrics by saying, you know, tell her about it. There's something creepy about Billy Joel for me. Um, and I don't quite know what it is. And am I... I'm probably oversensitive here. I detected faint racism in this video. Um, and it's just down to the head movements of the black people in the video. Are you talking about the backing singers or the, the people in the bar? The people in the bar. Right. The people in the bar, not the backing singers. But... Um, I haven't really. I'm, I'm, I'm interested that you and Pricey have made most notes about this. Um, I've made the least notes about this, actually. Um, I don't feel so bad for hogging the conversation now. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing, I mean, Billy Joel's annoyed me of late because um, I listen to Radio 3 a lot now that I'm an old man. And oh. they fucking played. Um, the other night, I listened to Radio 3 for serious classical music. And the other night, they played um, Billy Joel's Piano Concerto, which I stomached about a minute of it. It sounded as, as terrible as when opera singers sing jazz standards. It was horrible. Right. Um, but well, Radio um, this... 3, what's happened to you? I know, I know. Are but, you sure but... you've not tuned in your radio properly? No, no. <laughs> I need to put those stickers back on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. But no, um, this song... Um, I mean, do you like the song, Al? I think it's the best song on the whole episode by a mile. Wow. I love it. I, I bought it I, and I, I played it till it was the... You know, wow. thickness of a flexi disc. Mm. I loved it because I, I I loved anything that yeah. sounded a bit like Motown at the time, and it was just a storming tune. I thought this, I really did. Yeah. Far better than Uptown Girl. Yeah, which I, I thought was a bit of a dad song. But you hate it, do you, Neil? Don't you like it, Neil? Uh, I'm, I think I'm just averse to Billy Joel. I've not got thing. I've not got anything against short people. Um, <laughs> oh, but God. 
I don't know. Point to prove, perhaps. I, I don't know. Something something about Billy Joel has always slightly wound me up. Mm. Um, so consequently, you know, an Uptown Girl really fucking wound me up. And We Didn't Start the Fire is hilarious, don't yes. get me wrong. Yes, it but, is. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think I prefer Billy Joel videos to his music. And this video... Right. I mean, is a is a. I've got to admit, the video is there's tons to look at, mm. and it's a lovely, big, expensive American video yeah. with tons to look at. So I would have loved it at the time. It's yeah. only my um, crotchety old self that probably has problems with it. <laughs> I, I love, I love the big chunky CBS cameras. Just <laughs> want to throw that in. I just love, I just love old style TV cameras. But a lot of it was lost on me because you know in this country we didn't really know who we we didn't know who Ed Sullivan was so we just mm. see this 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 guy doing this weird know. kind of I don't know I think I think I think people a bit older than us would know Ed Sullivan you reckon Simply, well, I certainly didn't he was, know he was the man who broke the Beatles and Elvis in America he was uh, he was known about I mean a lot of people would have thought what's Richard Nixon doing on this yeah that's, that's it looks like Richard Nixon yeah <laughs> and um, I I didn't know who Rodney I still don't know who Rodney Dangerfield is to be honest. We don't see him on this episode of Top Eight. He's right at the end, and he's one of them. Yeah. He's one of them comedians that America loves, and everyone in Britain goes. Mm. Yeah, I only know him as Mallory's dad in Natural Born Killers. That's it. I've you know. Yeah. 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 Two weeks later, tell her about it would nudge up from number seven to number six and eventually get to number four. The follow-up, An Innocent Man, would spend three weeks at number eight in March of 1984. <laughs> Two records in the top 14. Here are Dennis Waterman and George Cole. Ah, oh, listen to that, Arthur. That's your actual boat bells. Oh, do leave off. It's Christmas, isn't it? Time of goodwill. Trying to make it, will you mean? You've only just got over £1.50 for the guy, mister. It's going to be a penny in my day. Yeah, well, Queen Victoria's dead, isn't she? No, I suppose it's going to be GBA to the year olds from carol singers. Come oh, cheer up, will you? Moan, moan, moan. That's all I ever get from you. It's tough and it's lonely in top management. Peel, accompanied this time by a huge middle-aged Jeff Capes look-alike in a grey jumper <laughs> with his gold medallion in his mouth, presumably one of the cameramen or floor staff, tells us that it's great that Billy Joel is spraying his musk across the charts. And as the beardo spits his medallion out, he introduces the next song. What are we going to get her indoors by Dennis Waterman and George Cole? Formed in the Winchester Club in 1979, Dennis Waterman and George Cole were the principal characters in Minder, the enormously successful ITV drama series about a massively unscrupulous trader and his henchmen. Cole had never performed on a single up until now, but he was the subject of Arthur Daylay, He's Alright, which the firm took to number 14 in August of 1982, but Dennis Waterman had form, releasing the LPs Downwind of Angels in 1976 and <laughs> Waterman a year later, and he got to number 3 in November of 1980 with the theme tune to Minder, I Could Be So Good For You. It's up this week from number 52 to number 26, and they're in the studio for a genuinely live performance. But be before we go into that, 
Let's go back to the Jeff Capes lookalike. Who do you think he was? Do you think he was one of the floor managers? He's got to be. He can't have been a person who wanted to get tickets to go and see. He can't be. He no. looks like fucking Zangief from Street Fighter. Yes, he does. He really does. He really, really odd, odd presence. Bigger yeah. than anyone in there. A man mountain. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and if that's what the floor managers look like on top of the hops, no wonder the kids are fucking cowering. Mm. Yeah, he looks like he can snap your neck like a twig. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah he, he could he could pull a um, a truck with his teeth. Yeah, a, a camera. But maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe he's pulling one of the big cameras by his teeth and going fuck off out of the way. <laughs> it could. I mean, maybe it is Jeff Capes. I'm not sure because. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just you know at Christmas anything goes. Maybe he was filming World's Strongest Man somewhere and he just strolled in. But um, yeah, an alarming and disturbing presence in there. <laughs> and why does he spit his medallion out? I don't get that. It's not really a medallion. It's one of them kind of like gold, little gold bars on a chain, which always look rubbish because you think, well, isn't something supposed to be hanging off that? Well, the reason he does that is sheer boredom. If you've ever worn a work lanyard, yeah. it will have ended up in your mouth at some point. You'd have been, you'll have been yeah. walking around with it in your gob and you will have spat it out in exactly the same way that this guy did. So I think it's just <laughs> yeah, boredom. But on tele, <laughs> wouldn't someone have said, oh, come on now, we can't have that. It's Christmas. <laughs> so anyway, Waterman and Cole. Canal, man. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's got it's got to be said that Minder was, you know, similarly to Born George, was becoming an eighties institution. It was. Now. I mean, at yeah. my house, we never watched it because it was. Well, I never watched it. It was on too late, and also ITV went off after Corey, um, never to return. Really, uh, we were very much a right. bit of a BBC house. Um, when this song comes on, I felt an overwhelming impulse to leave the room and not watch it because. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and the reason being, it, it, that was an exact recall of the way I would have felt um, in 83. Um, whereas now, right. if there's a Channel 5 three-hour programme, you know, like 50 most embarrassing moments in pop, I'll be there with the popcorn yeah. watching it. Um, back yeah. then, embarrassment wasn't something that I liked or, or enjoyed in pop. Yeah. And, and this is just really fucking embarrassing. I, I would have left the room. It's like an acting performance. <laughs> it's mortifying. And it's just not a record that should be on top of the pops to a certain extent. It's a dead spot in the show. Um, but it's it's if they were even if they did this competently, that'd be one thing. Mm. But it's just on the edge of falling apart. Um, you can see George mm. George Cole's lips moving when Dennis Waterman's doing his lines, and vice versa. Because you know it's quite a right. complex back and forth. Um, in mm. hip hop, you call it a posse cut. I bet, I, I guess, you know, <laughs> or a, or a cipher. Yeah, yeah. There, there's this back and forth thing, and they're quite <laughs> complex lines, and they're only just kind of holding on to something that, doubtless, yeah. in the studio took a whole day and several bottles of scotch to get right. But, um, yes. but live, I, I really had to resist the overwhelming urge to either leave the room or as you do as a child when you're embarrassed by something not cover your eyes cover your ears just so you can't hear it mm. i mean they are performing it double live you know it's an actual live spoken word performance uh, uh, on live television so uh you know you got to give you got to give that to them <laughs> trained actors and everything obviously but you know and, and of course, it doesn't help that the sound levels are fucked right at the beginning and we can hardly hear them yeah, talk. Yeah, but it, it's not pop. This is variety, really. And it should yeah. be on a variety mm, show. Yes. It shouldn't be on top of the pops. It's a waste of uh, you know, a few minutes of precious TOTP time. Simon? 
I um, never used to watch Minder, but I think my mum must have because um, I've got this real memory of when the theme tune came on, um, I Should Be So Good For You. I'd usually be lying on the sofa and I'd start... I'd, I'd sort of st- start kicking my legs and clapping my hands and sort of doing this stupid dance to it because I really enjoy- I, I I really enjoyed that song. Mm. But then once the actual program stopped, I'd just go upstairs and play Sabutio or something. Um, yeah, yeah um, the the intro to this apparently um, interpolates in the bleak midwinter. So um, yes. uh, I I looked this up on uh, Discogs and uh, actually Gustav Holst gets a songwriting credit <laughs> oh, on this track. Wow. Does he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's amazing. He got a nice little earner from it, you say. Hey, yeah, yeah. Mind he got was... a few reddies in his back bin. <laughs> well, all his catchphrases, I mean, Cole, George Cole actually uses the phrase GBH of the ear roll in this record, mm, yes. which I think was one of the catchphrases. Um, my favourite bit, though, is where it sounds as if Dennis Waterman is saying, hold on, here comes jism. Hold on, here comes jism. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Which is amazing, yes. and somebody should sample that and stick it over like man to man featuring man to man. But apparently, it's a character called Chisholm from the yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, um, and and yeah, Minder was so popular that this piece of absolute shit could get to number twenty something <laughs> in the charts. Um, and uh, and I'll tell you what what annoys me about it. Um, uh, many things annoy me about it, but th- this is something that always annoys me about records is when. The official title isn't what they actually sing. What he sings is, "What will I get for Christmas for her indoors?" Mm. But the title is, "What are we going to get her indoors?" In, in the song, it's, yeah. "What will I? What will I get? Like, what will I get for Christmas for her indoors?" Not, uh, not what are we gonna, but what will I get? Yeah, Fuck, I mean, yes, this has been right. super pedantic, but these are the thoughts that scroll through my mind when I'm watching this this uh, this performance. Because I remember what when, when I watched this for the first time, well, you know, for this, it was like, oh, Kid Jensen got the title wrong. What a knob! And no, he hadn't. He was right, and I was wrong. I apologise <laughs> to David. And it's, it's a classic example of a record that will be bought once, sorry, bought, then played once, and that's it. Because why is anyone yeah. going to play it again? It's unbelievable, isn't it? That yeah. somebody would <laughs> sit and you know play that repeat. Imagine if you were married to someone and. This is what they. Well, got yeah, especially because it because it's a list of here's what you could have had. You could have had a dodgy a dodgy fur coat. You could yeah. have had some caustic perfume or some cheap saucy underwear um, among the things mm. that get listed. And then what you get is that record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be terrible, wouldn't it? I mean, of course, this was the time before you know there was the concept of Ferrero Rochers in uh, all night garages. Yeah, yeah. The one thing that was crossing my mind was how much worse would this have been if it had been oh, Delboy yeah. and Rodney? Fair enough. But Delboy and Rod, Delboy and with Rodney with Granddad, wouldn't. with Granddad doing some beatboxing or. But something. Delboy and Rodney wouldn't have done this. Dennis Waterman's always wanted to be a pop star, hasn't he? He's always wanted to do songs and well, stuff. Well, famously so. yes, as, yes, as yes. parodied on on Little yeah. Britain, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. But I mean, the, the syntactical inaccuracy that Price is pointing out about the title, I'm going to now add that to my list of irritations about this song. <laughs> But really, really, it's the fact because that it's it, on top of the pops at all that bugs me. It's not particularly the song, you know. If our souls buy shit music, then it's that's fine. But um, it, it's such a waste of five precious minutes at top of the pops. So two weeks later, what we're gonna get? Er, indoors moved up to number twenty-one. Its highest position. This was fucking January. <sighs> <sighs> fucking people, they anger me so much. <laughs> 
The duo split up in 1989 and an attempt to replace Waterman with Gary Webster just didn't have the same magic. I wonder how many copies of this uh, Arthur Daly had in his lockup. <laughs> what are we gonna get for her indoors? Yeah, we're not carol singing. Yeah, I wish he'd stop. Come on. I've got a Codulami surplus Christmas puddings I want you. Come on. Christmas. Now that was Dennis Lovell and George Paul. That reminds me, have you got my Christmas present yet? Uh, you know, it's uh, it's in the post, you know what I mean? Pathetic, and it's... You ready to do the chart? I think so. Here we go. From number 30, yeah. At number 30 this week, the assembly never, never. Still at 29, The Way You Are, from Tears for Fears. Eurythmics are at number 28, right by your side. Roland Rat goes up 1 to 27 with Rat Rapping. At 26, a chart entry, and what are we going to get her indoors? At 25, Say 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 from McCartney and Jackson. At 24, Cry Just a Little Bit, Shaken Stevens. Marilyn's at number 23, Calling Your Name. At 22, a chart entry from Paul McCartney, Pipes of Peace. And at 21, Club Fantastic Mega Mix from Wham. But let's go back to number 22 now, okay? You don't mind, do you? At number 22, we're going to join Paul McCartney. This is his latest video. We're going to join him in the trenches for Pipes of Peace. Hey, one of your favorites, I know. bit of banter about missing Christmas presents and reading off the charts from number 30 to number 21 and waiting for the video to start, Kid introduces Pipes of Peace by Paul McCartney. After being the bassist in The Beatles, a 60s band which got to number 29 with a cover of Ain't She Sweet in 1964, and then going on to be the lead singer of Wings, Paul McCartney went properly solo in late 1979 and scored five top ten hits in the early 80s. This is the second cut from the new LP of the same name and the follow-up to Say Say Say, the duet with Michael Jackson which got to number two the previous month and is still in the charts at number 25. It's up this week from number 54 to number 22 and is accompanied by a video shot on Chobham Common in Surrey which recreates the horrors of World War One when McCartney was pitted against McCartney. And specifically the 1914 Christmas truce where the Tommies and Fritz had a good old kick around and got properly pissed up before going back to killing each other. This video, it is the fucking Sainsbury's advert, isn't it? Oh yeah, they totally stole that in 2014, didn't they? Down to the to the mm. exchanging of, of things and um, running off with them. Absolutely. Oh, by the way, yeah. that 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 scene where um, uh, the the two characters swap photos of their of their women. Um, I mean that that's kind of I find that a bit odd in itself. They're basically looking at them going, mm, "Not bad." And like nowadays, you know, <laughs> yeah. now, nowadays young men do that via X Hamster or Pornhub. 
Um, but, <laughs> yes. But in, in those days, they had, they had more primitive methods. Um, do you notice in the intro to this, by the way, um, Kid Jensen, he's, he's using a piece of paper instead of an auto cue. Yeah. And it's scrunched up in his hand when he's pointing at the camera. I found that a bit weird. It was very Chamberlain-like, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> I have my, in my hand a piece of yeah, paper. Yeah. Um, so in, in the States, this wasn't the A-side, was it? This was the B-side, and so bad yes. was the A-side. I find that odd. Is that just because the, the, you know McCartney thought that a message of peace wouldn't go down very well in Reagan's America at the time? <laughs> no, don't. I bet it was partly that. I bet it was partly that. The photo that McCartney hands... Sorry, that British McCartney hands to German McCartney is... Uh, to, to, to Von Cartney. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that, <laughs> that, that photo, if you look, it actually is Linda, isn't it? Yeah. I'm, I'm certain it's Linda McCartney in that sort of fake oldie time black and white photo. Um, uh, my my main memory of this song, I mean, it's 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 one of those one of those things that uh, on the one hand you've got to applaud it for being so um, incredibly catchy and and it sets out it, it achieves what it mm. sets out to do, which is to stick in your brain. Um, mm. I, I mm. mean, I kind of hated it, but the, the main thing I remember about it was that um, McCartney had been busted for drugs in Japan um, a couple of years earlier yes. and he would be busted for drugs in Barbados not long after this record was a hit. So we sang in school, smoke the pipes of pot instead. <laughs> <laughs> we, we thought that was so clever. Apparently he got <laughs> fucked over by Yoko Ono, didn't he, there, in that bust in Japan? Did he? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, according according to the Albert Goldman book, got to preface it with that, um, oh, so hang on a minute. So you're saying that if Yoko Ono hadn't sort of tipped off the authorities, there's no way they would have thought, hmm, Paul McCartney's <laughs> coming to Japan. There's yeah. no way that a former member of the Beatles might have any drugs on him. Yeah, well, there is that. But apparently, um, you know, that him and Lennon were talking to each other and he was, they were just about to tour Japan. And he, he McCartney happened to mention that, oh, we're going to be in the same hotel room that you have, the presidential suite in the Tokyo Hilton or whatever it is. And... Um, Apparently, John was very pissed off with this because they had really good hotel karma mm. and uh, they were worried that it was going to, I don't know, stink of vegetarian sausages after the McCartneys had been it. And so apparently, yeah, uh, Yoko had a cousin or something in customs and, um, you know, something got mentioned and uh, something happened. Yeah, right. uh, hotel, hotel karma's going to get you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And apparently Lennon really enjoyed the fact that the uh, police officers uh, made... Uh, made uh, McCartney play yesterday on a guitar over and over and over. <laughs> but then again, McCartney got his revenge later on when John Lennon got shot and uh, American TV and radio would play nothing but yesterday. <laughs> it's fucking weird, man. Honestly, there are radio broadcasts out there on the internet of uh, American radio in the, of the, of the morning of Lennon shooting and all the Beatles songs they play are all McCartney songs. For fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah. The, Terrible. He was kind of the only active Beatle in a sense at this stage, wasn't he? Really, um, he was the only he pretty much, really, yeah. You know, busy at the age of forty-one, um, making records with a message of, you know, a complex message befitting his age and wisdom that war is mm. bad. And then he did another one saying <laughs> racism is bad. And then he did another mm. one saying not all standing together is bad. Um, <laughs> now you know what, right? We all stand together. I've had a real epiphany on this. I think it's lovely. I really do. Uh, obviously, at the time, I, I would have hated it because I was a sulky teenager. But <laughs> I, I, I think it's got a charming cartoon video, and and mm. I, I think that um, it, it's it's its message is basically trade unionism. It's it's solidarity, man. Mm. I mean, we, we're going to come we're going to come to trade union solidarity later in the episode, yeah. listeners. Of course. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, uh, the, the, the NUA, <laughs> National Union of Amphibians. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know, the sappiness of the message of this, um, it is a really, really catchy song. I, I, will, I will give it that. Mm. Um, um, the sappiness of the message, it's, it, it's, it's like, it feels like educational music in a way. It feels like the sort mm. of thing that the big telly on wheels would have got wheeled into the classroom and would have been shown yes, the video. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> instead of, you know, the uh, side-on thermal image of, a, of a, an erect penis that we used to get um, with, 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 other sex, with, uh, with other educational TV that we were watching. Um, it's an odd what? We never got oh, that. Oh, God, we got that. What school did you go to? Well, um, well, good point. But, I mean, no, we saw a sex education thing. I think it was about 83. And it started off with just the normal things of boys and girls jumping into swimming pools. And, um, you know, boys and girls are different and they start growing different. And then suddenly it cuts to a thermal camera image of a cock um Becoming erect. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> the bizarrest thing. What kind I- of music was going with it? Was it really doomy synth music? It should have been some heavy wah wah funk, obviously, but it, <laughs> yes. it, it, it wasn't. I remember this startling, shocking, shocking image. But when we got the sex education videos, the first thing that happened would be the big telly was wheeled in, the big Betamax slab was, <laughs> was shoved in it, and then the teacher would just fuck off and go and have a fag. <laughs> And so we just sat there and, you know, of course, anarchy takes yeah, over. Yeah. But I mean, the one thing I remember is that they did an, you know, they did a, a um, they showed a full childbirth yeah. um, film. And right at the end, when the afterbirth came out, this is the only thing I can remember from sex education, is when the afterbirth came out, Gary Kirk turned round and said, hey, you can fry that up in a fucking pan, couldn't you? Like a pizza. <laughs> And this one girl just threw up all over the floor. And, you know, I mean, looking back on that now, what kind of upbringing was he having where, you know, you fried up a pizza in a pan? What the fuck is that all about? I thought you were going to say that um, after seeing this uh, uh, birth on, on the school telly, that your mates all um, rolled on their backs in their split stay press and stuck their legs in the air and reenacted it. <laughs> That would have been brilliant. <laughs> oh dear, we were such chatty little cunts. We were. Well, it's a really oddly arranged song, though, with lots of different sort of time signatures mm. and stuff in it. Down to the clever cleverness of George Martin, I guess. Um, but um, it's another song. I'm afraid to keep mentioning this. I've had to do covers of this. And when you learn a song, mm. you change your relationship with it to a certain extent. I had nothing really against Paul McCartney before I learned Pipes of Peace. But it, it's a <laughs> clever fucking song, man. And it's a pain in the arse to fucking learn it. So so by the end of learning it, I was, I was furious with the man. But um, oh. yeah, um, very, very undeniably, hugely, hugely catchy. Um, the timing of the release of it, he really, really wants to be part of our Christmas, doesn't he? Um, yes, he, he does. He really, really wants to make a Christmas song. This is, without a doubt, one of the kind of memorable Christmas songs of the 80s. Um, surprising mm. it didn't get to number one, actually. But as for the video, if a band did this nowadays, recreated the uh, the, the 1914 Christmas truce, I, I, think, I think there'd be a lot of fuss about it, even, you know, before the Sainsbury's nonsense. <laughs> but... I can't remember anybody giving a shit about it then. Everyone thought, oh, this is good. This is nice. I think people learnt about that story. I didn't know about that story, if it supposedly happened. I didn't know about that story until this video. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I learnt about that 
Christmas truce through pipes apiece. Because it was, you know, selling you a record as opposed to some mm, Ponzi mm, biscuits. In this, in this video, it's legitimate. The lyrics don't exactly carry the message over yeah. properly because there's a few odd ones. Um, no. And I really, really don't like the line, uh, planet we're living on, is it the only one, what are we going to do? There's something about that bugs me as well. When, when the, the swap happens in the TV advert, um, it's mm. chocolate, isn't it? So I'm thinking yeah. that in that situation, the Brit is really getting the best end of the deal, getting some German chocolate. And the German yeah. guy's like, what the fuck is this? You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, really, I mean, if this video was made today, the German would end up with a a packet of Linda McCartney's sausages with the words, you can do it right now, please, yes! written on it. I mean, the other the other um, question the video raises is, what would have happened if Paul McCartney was German? <laughs> well, he wouldn't have been a pop star. No. We didn't have German pop stars in the 60s, did we? That Not made really, it over no. here, I mean. No. So he might have bided his time, joined a Krautrock collective around about 1969. Ooh. And be written about by David Stubbs right now. Wow, yes. Yeah, that's right. And uh, he'd be better known for temporary secretary than for yeah. Hey Jude. Yeah. yeah. So, two weeks later, Pipes of Peace would soar up to number nine and eventually get to number one for two weeks. Paul McCartney's only solo number one. The follow-up, No More Lonely Nights, would get to number two in October of 1984. In 2014, Sainsbury's will run an advert. Oh, I'm not talking about those cunts. Fuck them. <laughs> got a little. Anything else we need to say about this? Can I Can I just say, I've got to throw in that you can uh, edit it if you want, but Neil's uh, thermal image of uh, an erect <laughs> yeah. penis at school. Yeah, we need to get back to this. Uh, what, what it should have been accompanied by, of course, is Dennis Waterman saying, Hold on, here comes schism. <laughs> <laughs> He's a bit of a philosopher, isn't he? Now we're going to go back to the charts and it's going to be me reading it. Chart entry at number 20 from Slade. Merry Christmas, everybody. At 19, Cool and the Gang and Straight Ahead. At 18, That's All from Genesis. At 17, Barry Manilow, Hear Him and Weep. At 16, UB40, Many Rivers to Cross. The Pretenders are at 15, 2,000 miles, go on, count them. Billy Joel at 14, Uptown Girl, moving gradually downtown. At 13, it's Thriller, that's Michael Jackson. At 12, the ubiquitous Tracy Ullman, move over, darling. And at number 11, what is love? The unanswerable question. Here's Howard Jones. taking the piss out of Macca, Peel runs down the charts from number 20 to number 11 and eventually introduces What Is Love by Howard Jones. Born in Southampton in 1955, Howard Jones formed his first band at the age of 16, a prog act called Warrior. After a stint in a cling film factory in High Wycombe, he ordered a synth in 1979 and was sent two by mistake and decided to use both as a solo act. With his interpretive dancer, Jed Hoyle, he spent 1982 providing local support for the blues band and the flying pickets in Aylesbury and in March 1983 he landed a Radio 1 session with Kid Jensen. 
After supporting China Crisis in their UK tour, he finally signed a deal with WEA in the UK and his debut single, New Song, got to number three in October of this year. This is the follow-up and it's up this week from number 14 to number 11. And, as we've already mentioned, he's just been announced as the most promising new act of 1984 by Smash Hits. I just want to say one thing about the um, the chart rundown before Please that. Do. Mm-hmm. Um, John Peel says, at 17, Barry Manilow, hear him and weep. Yes. And, yeah. I mean, on, on the face of it, that is a reasonably f- funny quip. But it's exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. It's that kind of wearing sarcasm mm. of like him being better than yeah. pop. Mm. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, no, no. Good point. Good point. Where do we start with Howard Jones, gentlemen? Let's start at the top. Let's start with his hair. Um, <laughs> yes. Because I never liked that feather cut look. And, um, no. you know, Jones and Kershaw, I guess, uh, Nick Kershaw, Andy, obviously, um, would be um, would be emblematic of that. Um, and yeah, he. this was the start of, of me really falling out of love with pop people like Howard Jones. It just seemed to really, really get bland in 83. Howard Jones is yes. definitive of 83 precisely because of that. Somewhere along the line, electro pop lost its, it lost its base, I think. And I don't mean B-A-S-E, I mean B-A-S-S. Um, it just, yeah. the technology, which was obviously, you know, cutting edge at the time and was advancing at a pace. It fell out of the hands of kind of primitives and ne'er-do-wells and it fell into the hands of musicians who were all basically fucking Mike Oldfield-like. You know what I mean? And, you know, that, that, to be honest with you, I was racking my brains thinking of that whole electric, electronic rather, one-man band thing, that self-sufficient thing. I've never been keen on that from Howard Jones all the way through till Moby. I've never been keen on that, on that kind of pop star. Um, I guess he was the future because he's got a microphone he doesn't have to hold, um, which would have mm. seemed quite futuristic at the time. But so bland, no one was going to get told off by their parents for listening to Howard Jones, were they? Um, and, and what I really no. object to with him, I think, is his lyrics, um, which were co-written mainly with a guy called Bill Bryant, who I believe now does self-help kind of transcendental meditation Oof. tapes and stuff. And and you, you can tell that in, in, in the lines because... Because New Song angered me, I remember. New Song, which was the hit before this, I think. Um, you know, lines like, um, they take the challenge to their hearts. Challenging, preconceived ideas. This is fucking management speak. And um, yeah. and, and I don't don't like it. In, I mean, the only, it wasn't really a redeeming feature having Jed on stage. Jed isn't even there for this performance. Yeah, where the fuck is Jed? No idea. No idea. That's the first thing that sprang to mind. Where is he? He's, he's thrown off him. his mental chains and done a runner, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he can't be double booked Clearly. or anything, you know. So uh, I don't know what he's not doing there. And the Jeff Cape Zangief lookalike is staring at Jones like he's going to actually... He's d- deciding which body part he's going to eat first. That was the only thing I kind of liked about this. <laughs> Other than that, yeah, it, 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 I think you asked the question, where do you stand on the Howard Jones-Nick Kershaw divide? I preferred Nick Kershaw... Just because I really, really disliked Howard Jones. I oh, think. there's a there's a controversial standpoint there now. Well, Kershaw was horrible as well. You know, these are essentially these were essentially no different than prog musicians. Really, they weren't weirdos. It, it, looking back, you start thinking when you see Howard Jones on this that really moments like um, Culture Club, do you really want to hurt me? Moments like Adamant yeah. on Top of the Pops, they are long gone, and we're not going to see their like again for a long, long while. Um, these kind of these kind of bland figures 
um, yeah. dominate. Simon? Yeah, I mean, I think Neil said it all, but I'm just going to say it again in slightly different words. Um, Good. <laughs> um, Good. Yeah, so there he is. He's, um, do you notice he's barefoot, by the way, which is... Yes, he's barefoot in a Guantanamo Ugh. jumpsuit with... Fucking hippie. Fucking hippie. With his cockatoo, his cockatoo hair, his orange overalls, <laughs> and his call centre headset, which... He's like um, a, a tech support operator that plays his own horrible music while you're waiting for him to sort your laptop out. I, I think probably previously in pop was seen when Kate Bush uh, wore it during yes. the live performance, yeah. which is fine because it's Kate Bush. Yeah. But um, there's definitely a feeling that this is where it all went wrong. Yeah. In fact, if you read um, Simon Reynolds' amazing book, Rip It Up and Start Again, mm. which is you know the history of post-punk yeah. Yeah. 78 to 84, you really get a sense of that, that um, things are kind of gone from almost in sort of chronological order, Kraftwerk, The Human League, Ultravox, Tubeway Army, and then things like Visage and Soft Cell, all brilliant. And somehow it, it just tips over in 83 into this. Mm. And it's mm. absolutely correct to highlight, as both of you have, that um, this is essentially a, a prog mentality. It's not coming from a kind yeah. of alternative or a punk mindset at all. Mm. Um, and, and so he's simultaneously all right and awful. Um, yeah. There, there, there are some, I mean, I, I've, I've got time for some of his stuff. For example, um, uh, and this is getting a bit obscure and particular, but there's a song uh, which was eventually a single called No One Is To Blame. Yeah. And there was a, a, a version of that on the, it was a Richard Skinner session, I think. And it was just Howard Jones and the piano doing that. And it was brilliant. Mm. Um, and right. there, there are a few other tracks, slightly later singles like Pearl in the Shell that I, I thought were all right. But this, um, I mean, I, but not not this point, but a year later, I had my own column in the local paper and I, I, I called Howard Jones the SDP manifesto put to synth pop. <laughs> and, um, and, and it was that sort of determinedly middle of the road thing, yeah. even in, in in New Song, where it's see both sides. And, and then you've got, you know, like to get to know mm. you well. It's, it's basically yeah. um, an even lamer version of Depeche Mode, people are people, isn't yeah. it? I mean, I ought to like this because it's got this kind of anti-love message and there are other songs in that vein that, that I really do like, but there's just something really aggravating. Well, about well I, I, Jones. I'll tell you for why, Simon, because this is, this is the synth version of Chris Needham in his bed going, I care for Jane a lot. You can see that, but do I really? Howard Jones has become a moral preacher, which is the last thing in the world he wanted. <laughs> That chart music it. would that be chart it. music without at least one Chris Needham reference. Talking to Chris, <laughs> let me, let's just let's just cut through this nonsense with a bit of important Chris news. New album coming out soon. Got it on my oh. desk right now. And actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna nice. I'm gonna open the letter. You carry on chitting, chitting and chatting. Another reason I didn't trust Howard Jones was that he had his synths set up on this kind of really expensive-looking A-frame um, kind of um, scaffolding thing. Um, and I just thought, if I don't know, if, if if you're a new act, how do you even afford all that gear? Where, yeah. You know, who's who's pulling the strings here? Where's where's he got all his money from to do this? Yeah, I don't know. Well, he keeps ordering synths and getting two for one. <laughs> that maybe <laughs> that's where that's, maybe is, that's where Jed is. He's in the warehouse now, just just skanking them. <laughs> and then then there's that there's that bit in the in the performance, and and again, it's something that I ought to like because I do quite like it when people on top of the pops kind of um, subvert the format but he stops 
um, pretending to play the synths with his fingers and he just sort of walks around the front in front of the synths mm, and starts mm. singing. And and yeah, there have been times, you know, when, when, when the Boomtown Rats did that or when the Associates did it and made it very clear that they're miming. But just, I don't know, there's something so, so aggravating about Howard Jones. And I almost feel guilty, right? Because um, uh, one of my best mates, Neil, who I, I mentioned, uh, Neil Sparnan, I mentioned in the previous episode, um, he was banging to Howard Jones. He loved him. And I, I feel like I'm almost having a pop at my best mate for slagging off, you know, his, his hero. And also, um, I... I co-organised um, a tribute night in Cardiff to Steve Strange um, a year and a half ago, and Howard Jones came along and played it. He wasn't my choice, but he came along and mm. he was great. He, he went out and did about twenty yeah. minutes of the hits and got the audience going. I just thought, oh, he's quite nice, really. But well, that, that's the but, thing; he is nice. I mean, he always came over as being a, just a nice, regular bloke in smash hits and stuff like that. But you know, mm. we don't want nice, regular blokes. Not. No, not not always, and, and and you know we're drawing lines back. We've we've all said that there's a kind of proggy thing to it. If I was drawing a line forward from this, it wouldn't actually be to electronic music. It would be more to do with the kind of vague, syrupy, hippie spirituality of it. For me, the lyrics of Howard Jones remind me of the worst kind of songs by the fucking Levelers and Back to ah. the Planet and people like that. There's that whole, and probably, possibly being a bit regionalist here, but there's that whole bucolic West country kind of hippiedom to it that I, that I, that I really, really don't like. I probably didn't know that at the time in 83, but it was, it was a dead giveaway. Even at the age of 11, I knew that things were going wrong. Things were going bland and things were going, yeah, like Simon said, that the whole thing Simon said about the whole, the big load of equipment that he's got and the way he clambers around it, that is, in a sense, as as much of a kind of prog move, it it it's, it puts a gap between the audience and and, and the, and the yeah. player in not a good way. It's it, it it's this is all stuff I only understand, yeah. you know. And, and whereas when you when you watch, I don't know any band from previous. I mean, when I watched in '79, when I watched people like Gary Newman playing, it didn't feel like that prohibitively. It obviously was prohibitively expensive, but it didn't feel like synthesizers were somehow just for the rich, yeah. whereas I think Howard Jones is kind of peddling that line to a certain extent with his little kind of, you know, bank keyboard. He comes off like a trendy teacher, uh, right yeah, down to the haircut, does, yeah. in, in, in the same way that Sting was basically a trendy teacher. He literally was a trendy teacher. Yes. That's that's what Howard Jones comes off like as well. Yeah, but anyway, on to important things. Uh, here's here's a, a letter from Chris Needham with his new LP, Lightning Striking from the Moon. <laughs> Fucking brilliant title. 11 tracks out of the box are ready to blast you on YouTube. I hope you enjoy the typical Needham mayhem with a couple of left field surprises, including a track called Just Sex. <laughs> and, oh my God. I've got to hear that. Check out the rapping from MCC Ned. <laughs> He's rapping on, oh, fucking hell. I'll, I'll finish this podcast as soon as possible. Ow. I want to hear this. Ow, ow. I do the hip-hop page for DJ Magazine. Send me that track. I will yes. fucking review it in the pages of DJ Magazine. Yes. Without a doubt. My God, that's an important thing. So, two weeks later, What Is Love nudged up to number 10 and then leapt up to number two, held off the top spot by Pipes of Peace. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. The follow-up, Hide and Seek, got to number 12 in March of 1984 and his debut LP, <laughs> Human's Lib, got to number one in the same month. He was finally reunited with Jed in a 20th anniversary gig in 2003. 
Although Jed had aged somewhat, the beast shuffled in his chains as if he dimly remembered his old handler before being released into the wild. <laughs> Pausing only to turn round and mime the words, Thank you, Master Howard. <laughs> Christmas number one, the flying pickets, and here they are with only you. Kid asks Peel what he thinks of the Christmas charts, and Peel responds that they get him right here before punching himself in the stomach, and then introduces Only You by the Flying Pickets. Formed by members of the 7 84 theatre group, which got its name because 7% of the population owned 84% of the wealth. Oh, the good old days. The Flying Pickets were cast members in a 1981 production of the play One Big Blow about a miners' brass band during the strikes of the early 70s. But as they couldn't find any musicians, they decided to do everything a cappella and decided to keep their hand in and make a bit on the side as a singing group. After funding the release of a live album themselves, they were signed to Virgin Records in 1983, and this is their debut single, a cover of the Yazoo single which got to number two the year before. It became the highest new entry in the first week of December and shot straight up to number one, and this is its third week there, the Christmas number one of 1983. Oh, you couldn't get any more right on than this, can you? <laughs> no, you couldn't. I mean, yeah. it, it's a nice... I love the song, you see. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that they're covering it proves, I mean, so soon after it came out the year before, mm. proves just what an amazing thing Vince Clark created in, in writing that song. But when I listen to the original, because I loved Yuzu, yeah. and then listen to this, mm. it's um, in the hands of Alison Moyer, she sings this beautiful song with sort of, real fragility and an edge of kind of desperation to it. Mm. It, 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 it. It's emotionally really involving. In their hands, in the Flying Pickets' hands, it becomes more of a sing-along, sing-together song yeah. rather than a kind of song for one person. It's more gentle and lulling. I will, I will always usually prefer the original mm. to this. I'm also slightly dubious about its status as the first a cappella number one mm. because... Hmm, is it a cappella? Is what's, no, it's is not. It totally no, not fully a cappella, no. Yeah. It's, it's, produced, it's produced to fuck, isn't it? Is, it? When yeah. you hear, Completely. I mean, some, some of those um, harmonies are treated and, and, and you know, manipulated uh, in, in a way that's almost like 10cc, I'm not in love or something yeah. at certain yeah. times. Totally. I mean, and I was also fascinated to find out that this was one of Thatcher's favourites. Yes, yes. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 they've taken... Like one of my, they basically what they're doing is they're singing Clark's synth lines 
Mm. And, 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 you know, but then they're turning a song that I think the original, the original didn't make, um, the listener feel happy necessarily or make them feel comfortable. They've somehow managed to make the song feel really comfortable and like a sing together thing. That's why everyone's swaying and everyone's yeah. kind of, you know, linked arms on stage. Well, they've, t- they've turned um, it into a Christmas song without having to whack bells on it or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I think that everything about the performance from the donkey jackets and the linked arms and even their name is a physical representation of solidarity. Yeah. And I quite like that about yeah. them. I mean, they, they had all been striking miners or they certainly been, been involved in protests um, during the miners strike of 72 and of 74. And, um, in the next year, they, they actually picketed Drax Power That's Station right, yes. and, and they, they got in trouble with their record company they for did. that. Um, so I, I I feel warmly towards them for that. Um, yeah, um, the two most sort of vis- visually noticeable members are, are Brian Hibbard, um, the main singer guy with his massive sideburns. Yeah. And he's wearing that T-shirt, Today, Deptford, Tomorrow, The World, yeah. which um, I, I looked it up. I think it's a squeeze T-shirt, yes. actually. And then there's the bald one who was called Red Stripe, who's yes. kind of a Nosferatu-looking mm. dude. Um but um, and the, the the rest of them, um, there's there's one guy. He's got this kind of permed hair with little blonde flecks mm. in it, and he he looks like um, oh Michael Ball. Yes, That's what he looks so. like. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, are, are we sure that it's not Michael Ball? Basically, they uh, if if you can have a, a a girl a girl group or a boy band, they're a dad band, aren't they? They're yes. totally a dad band. Yeah, and um, I, I suppose that in itself was a novelty, and it was sold as a novelty record. Yeah. And I think that's how many people viewed it. Part of the novelty, I mean, Neil mentions the fact that they are singing Vince Clark's synth lines. I think, in a way, that was the joke they were making, wasn't it? Because at that yeah. time, synth synth music was still quite a new thing, and it was still the sort of thing that grown-ups would huff and puff mm. about, saying, "God, it's not it's not real music. It's just all done on computers." Mm. So they've gone and then how the Jones opposite extreme mm. and put them right. <laughs> but yeah, but they but they've gone to the opposite extreme and and had this utterly synthetic record supposedly um, performed only by human voices and um, I, I think that that's what, why people loved it as much as the sort of Christmassy feel to it um, by the way apparently we talked about the Young Ones earlier on apparently Christopher Ryan from the Young Ones had been a member really? of the Flying Pickets right. yeah Mike from the Fly- yeah. Mike from the Young Ones had been a Flying Picket but he quit just before before this so that that, that would have added a certain he would have fitted right in as well there. wouldn't he yeah, yeah, he was. Mike, yeah. who I never properly got in the young ones when I nah. watched it at the time, but have grown nah. to love his lines more and more as, as time. Really, goes on. sort of. I mean, he's yeah, never going to be up there with Rick, obviously, but um, you know, he becomes funny the older you get. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I always thought at the time he was too old to be a student, but then that's the point, yeah, that's isn't the point, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, not not a lot to say about this. It's it's hard hard to hate. It, mm. it, it does. It does give you kind of warm, warm feelings, I suppose. But I'm always going to prefer the Yazoo version. Yeah, mm. it's number one because it's a fucking. It's a great song. It's a really, really great song. Anyone covering it possibly would have got up near the top of the charts. Because yeah, and I, I, I don't think Thatcher's allowed to like no, it. No, she can fuck um, off. In the no. same way that John, Johnny Marr said that um, David Cameron's not allowed to like the yeah. Smiths. Yeah. I think, you know, there should have been a rule that Margaret Thatcher wasn't allowed to like a band called The Flying Pickets. But, I mean, everything you've said about the record is the reason why it is the Christmas number one. You know, it's communal, it's Mm. slow, it's all-inclusive. 
You know, I mean, I yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't uh, remember uh, uh, being uh, upset that this was number one at Christmas because at, at at Christmas, all you need. No, I'm not saying all you need to get Christmas number one, but a genuine sort of a sense that snow is falling helps. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And if you leave the record sparse, that will kind that could start happening just because it's it's near Christmas. Similar thing happened with E17 Stay, which is not a Christmas song in as much as it's about Christmas, but it had that Christmassy vibe. Yeah. And um, I think it's the same, it's the same thing carrying this one ahead. And yeah. Well, um, E17 eventually re-released Stay with Jingle Bells yes, on it, did, didn't yeah. they? Oh, yeah. And, and it got, yeah, it became a hit yeah. again. But yeah, um, the, the the falling snow you mentioned, it's the, they've got that in the studio, yeah. haven't they? Yeah. And there's, um, it's, it's sticking in his sideburns yes. and it looks like he's wearing earrings at one point. <laughs> yeah. It's... Maybe, actually, maybe he's wearing earrings, I don't know. And, and and flying pickets uh, was was a phrase that maybe wasn't th- that well known um, yeah. certainly, no. certainly to kids at the time. No. But but um, a year later, when the miners' strike kicked oh, off, yes. and uh, you know, of course, a lot of people listen to the news, and, and there'd be all this sort of grave talk about flying pickets turning up at uh, yeah, you know, no, I, I thought it was the band. And, and and oh yeah, all the kids are sort of giggling up, <laughs> you know. <Yes. laughs> I really love what, like what Pricey said about this being thought of at the time as a novelty record. I'd completely forgotten that, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It was thought of as yeah. a novelty record, and of course in the 80s Christmas number ones were a mix between the odd novelty record and the odd direct um, sort of Christmas song so I mean the year before yeah. this we've got Save Your Love Renee and Renato as the Christmas number one the year after this we've got Band Aid as the 80s yeah. goes on we get Christmassy songs I think Cliff Richard has a couple towards the end of the 80s Mr. Tone Wine yes, and Save yeah. in the 90s I think what happens is pure novelty so it's all Mr. Blobby all the fucking way and then what happens yeah. recently with Christmas number ones is that they, as ever an index of the times, they become almost campaigning issues or X Factor number ones, you know. Um, yeah. And that's what we've got at the moment. So it's either Military Wives or it's Rage Against the Machine or it's Leona Lewis. It's really, really odd at yeah. the moment. Yeah, the, the, last, yeah. the last proper Christmas song was Mariah Carey. There's been nothing after that. I think you're right. That's the, yeah. that's the last one. Yeah. But um, yeah. it's just occurred to me that the, the flying pickets um, on this episode coming straight after Howard Jones. They're kind of the anti-Howard Jones mm. in so many ways. Yes, they are, in yes. The, he's there with all this fucking expensive equipment on this big A-frame scaffold, and they're just there in donkey jackets with their arms linked, just going together, you know. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah. that, there's something kind of amazing about that. And it, it's, it's reminded me that at the time, I, I was briefly affected by this record to the extent that... Um, I considered forming an avant-garde a cappella band because <laughs> wow. yeah, yeah, I was going to do it. I was going to form a band that could just turn up anywhere with no equipment and just start like laying down some serious political, but also musically avant-garde um, <laughs> harmonies. Um, wow. I, I, I never quite. I wish I'd done it. Yeah, but, but yeah, just just fleetingly that passed through my mind. And of course, you know, you've you've got to say thank God this was number one instead of uh, my oh my by Slate. But even worse, that. <laughs> That very week, Margarita Time by Status Quo had jumped 20 places to number five. Can you imagine that being number one? That is a big leap, isn't it? That is a big Blimey. leap. It is. It is. That song's all right, though, you know. I I, I think I didn't like oh, it at I the can't time. Stand but, it. Oh, but Dexy's, Dexy's did a cover of it, and it's uh, maybe just because I'm a massive Dexy's fan, but I, I kind of like their version. Yeah, of it. but it, it's, it's Status Quo, and they've, they've got a bit of synthiness in it and everything. It's like, ugh. No, don't. But, I, the, don't. but those are actually some of my most relished moments of status quo. Uh, the cheesiness of right. Margarita time, and also, of course, of course, the moment in um, you're in the army now, where um, Rick yes. Parfit screams, "Stand up and fight!" 
so you know, eighties crap quo is, is actually quite enjoyable. So three days later, they appeared on the Christmas Day episode of Top of the Pops, dressed as snowmen, and the song stayed at number one for two more weeks before being usurped by Pipes of Peace. The follow-up, a cover of the Marvelettes' 1964 hit "When You're Young and in Love," got to number seven in May of 1984. Their last bit of chart action. The band are still going to this day, although they've had no original members since 1990. Isn't that weird? The idea that there's a flying pickets going around with none of those guys in it. Right. Yeah, well, you know, they all got closed down, didn't they? <laughs> ah, yeah. But the struggle continues with the new generation, yeah. And, of course, the other thing is, isn't it nice to see kind of like resting actors, <laughs> you know, doing something constructive with their time <laughs> that, does, yeah. that doesn't involve male stripping? <laughs> and, yeah, you're right to call them resting actors because if, uh, if if you look at what they did after, a lot of them ended up going back into acting. Um, mm. I think um, yeah. the bald one... Uh, Moved to Australia. Oh, you never leave it, lovey. The, 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 the ball fella ended up in uh, either Neighbours or Home and Away. In Neighbours, uh, briefly. yeah. Briefly. Yeah, mm. yeah. And the, and the lead singer did the uh, the Grand Slam, didn't he? He was in EastEnders, Coronation Street, Emmerdale Farm, and, because he was Welsh, Poblacum. Right. Ah. Always comes back to Poblacum. <laughs> Wishing us a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and pointing out that they've got to fuck off back to their proper jobs now, Kid and Peel introduce Rat Rapping, brilliant isn't it, by Roland Rat Superstar. Born under King's Cross Railway Station, Roland Rat first appeared on television on April the 1st of this year and is credited with saving the ailing breakfast TV station TVAM, taking its viewer rating from 100,000 to 1.8 million in a mere two months. This is his first single release in a duet with his number one rat fan, Kevin the Gerbil, and it's up this week from number 28 to number 27. Now, Neil, you were a bit younger than us. Did Roland Rat mean mm. mean anything to you? I fuck it. I loved Roland mm. Rat. I loved Roland Rat. I found him hilarious. Yeah. And uh, watched TVAM precisely for uh, Roland Rat. In fact, you know, well, you didn't I watch probably... TVM for Robert Key or um, <laughs> David Frost. I can't or... say I did or Anne, or Anne Diamond. No, um, it was all about Roland Rat for me. I found him hilarious. As I found Green Gilbert funny later on. Mm. Um, he, he, he was he was great. But um, the thing is with this song, unfortunately, um, it's pretty awful, isn't it? Oh, um, it's cat it, shit. It, well, it's rat shit. No mind cat shit. It, it's rat shit. Roland, no, but Roland Rat. Roland Rat, I really liked. Mm. Um, and actually, this single, I, I was probably twattish enough to have bought this mm. at the time, just because I was majorly into Roland Rat. But when you look at the other hip-hop singles that are, you know, hip-hop is happening somewhere in the world at that time. Yeah. But the rap singles that get in the charts in 83, 
um, yeah. really reveal that it's still seen as a bit of a fab and a bit of a novelty, really. I, 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 um, and I'll go further than that. No, it's seen as something that's that's passed. Yeah, maybe so. Because what have we got? We're, People are feeling that it, it's gone from being this weird thing from America to being a novelty what? thing. Yeah, I mean, novelty hip-hop was a real pox around it this was, time, yeah. wasn't it? You had, mm. you had like, no, 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 90, not out. And you had that chalk dust thing about... Um, the, rap. That, yeah. Yeah, that... Um, yeah, and that one about Morris, um, John and, the Majors. and all of that. Well, I mean, it, it, yeah. just, it was just awful. In January '83, you've got Wham, you know, Wham rap that becomes a hit, which yes. I would still count as a kind of almost serious rap tune. But then by by yeah. March, you've got Kenny Everett snot rap getting in there. Yeah, um, October Rocksteady Crew, Hey You, that's mm-hmm. a proper record. But by November, yeah, Rolling Rap Superstar. Yeah. From then on, it was kind of seen as a novelty. At the time, as you were probably aware, Albert, I wasn't. I mean, I was. I had had my mind blown by by White Lines and the me- well message by them in '82. Really yeah. turned me on to hip hop in a big way. But seeing the yeah. hip hop that came in the charts, yeah, not a lot that was in any way serious, apart from maybe the rapping Rapture by Blondie. And of course, the next hit up after mm. Roland Rat Superstar Rat rapping would be um, Mel Brooks, the Hitler rap. Which was um, a hit yeah. in eighty four. Yes, to be or not to yeah, be. So, yeah, so yeah. hip hop really seen by pop as a fad, a past fad, like you say, and a, a, a detail of pop, not a type of music in a sense. Something that you can add to yeah. an already existing record, or something that you can just take yeah. the piss out of. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, um, I, I sort of felt that hip-hop had lost its way uh, for a little while. And obviously, this was an incredibly superficial view to have on it. Just, uh, you know, speaking as a kid who got his records in Woolworths and, you know, got his mm. knowledge from Radio yeah, 1 yeah. or whatever, just from, yeah. from Britain. But but yeah, the, the, the sort of proper hip-hop records that were breaking through... Um, they themselves seemed a bit novelty-ish, mm. you know. Um, yeah. I, I don't know the exact timeline, but things like um, Amityville House on yeah. the Hill by... Was that yes. Lovebug Starsky? Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. um, uh, Curtis Blow had that Christmas tune and stuff like that. And Yeah. Uh, yeah, it just... I, I, I probably did think that maybe uh, this is a bit of a novelty fad that will blow over. And it's only in the late 80s when Def Jam really got yeah. going that yeah. I had my mind changed about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, even even yeah. something like... You know, which would be now considered a classic, something like Dougie Fresh the Show or something, which is going to come in a, a, about a year's time. Yeah. It's still kind yeah. of mainly... Not a comedy record as such... But it is, you know, it's it's it, it, it's not serious. Considering at the same time, you know, I mean, what Run DMC are bringing out, Raising Hell and things like that. So there is serious hardcore hip hop being made, or rather, hardcore hip hop is being created. But it's a million miles from the charts. And actually, to yeah, be yeah. honest with you, it's a million miles away from being played by John Peel at this time as well. As I recall, yeah. John Peel starts playing hip hop round about the late 80s, and then really rapidly actually yeah. falls out of love with hip hop as soon as it starts saying things that politically he can't really get with. Um, so, so yeah. long as it stays conscious and, and righteous, he's fine with hip hop later in the eighties. But then drops it when it, you know, it's in a similar mood to the way that reggae fans, some um, white rock reggae fans, stop listening to reggae when it turns into dancehall. Um, you know, yeah. John Peel did, did did the same thing later on. You, you had also in July '83, I think, Gary Bird and GB Experience, The Crown, which was a record produced by yes. Steve, very conscious, yeah, very conscious, produced by <laughs> Stevie Wonder. I mean, you know, but there's. Rap is either comedy or it's sort of a bit ball-achingly righteous. The thrill of mm. hip-hop, and really the thrill of hip-hop, I would suggest, starts lying in its illiberality, its sexism and its racism and all the rest of it, um, and its sort of transgressiveness. That's nowhere near the charts. It's still 
pretty mm. much a joke. Uh, with this Roland Rat Superstar thing, what I'm really focused on watching this episode isn't the record at all because you can barely hear it because you yeah. can properly see the audience for what seems yes. like the first time in the whole episode. And your first thought is, what a bunch of wankers. They, they, <laughs> they, 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 you know, yeah, tw- none of twats them... Twats in hats. Twats in hats. And none of them, you know, it's the old debate that we're always having in these chart music um podcast about are they kids or not or are they uh, th- th- yeah. there's too many zoo type people just being arseholes and you don't really get a flavor of kids and the audience that you do see they're all just whooping it up um yeah as you feel they would do to anything earlier on we've got people trying to dance to the friggin flying pickets and yes. you know and, and <laughs> really try do, and get yes. a party going to this and and you know I, I i found that not disappointing as such but i think it's the start of the audience becoming not um, reflective of much other than what wankers no. people become when they're asked to shout and scream uh, in yes. response to pop music. Yeah. But Roland Rat, let's move back to him because uh, hopefully you or the pop crazy youngsters out there might be able to help me because I swear, Dan, that I saw an, uh, um, an article written about this time with the, with the person who made Roland Rat mm-hmm. and... I, I tell this to people in the pub and everything, and they absolutely refuse to believe me. But I read, or at least I think I read, uh, the bloke who made Roland Rat said, yeah, we did the puppet and everything. It was great, but we were just having problems with the ears. We couldn't get them right. And then I decided to make them out of Johnny's. <laughs> <laughs> and I say to people, Roland, did you know that Roland Rat's ears were made out of Johnny's? And they, oh, the shit I get off people. You know, I might as well have said, oh, well, Gary Glitter, he was just, you know, he was just interested. I'm looking at a photo of Roland Rat right now. They, they absolutely could be. They could be rolled at Rubber Johnny's. Um, yeah. And I'm actually yeah, honest. The, the kind of the, 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 for want of a better word, the entry point of the Johnny has been flattened. <laughs> and obviously, that's had something done to it. Um, but yeah, he's got Johnny's for ears. I was totally oblivious and, to that and maybe, time, obviously. And maybe that's what people who are listening right now really like Howard Jones are saying about us. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are. And actually, Al, um, the quickness of the internet, I'm on a forum where somebody is also recalling an interview with the creator of yes, Rat where he brother. said that the ears were made of condoms. So yes. you are correct, sir. Fucking yes. <clears throat> well, that's it now. We don't have to do another episode of Chart Music ever again. <laughs> oh, really? Here it's done. 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 <laughs> so I mean, this, uh, I mean, uh, and the song as well. I mean, uh, tee hee hee. Um, they've gone. Oh, scratching. That's like what you do when you've got fleas. Mm, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's it. And and you know the idea of scratching that was a bit funny as well, wasn't yeah. it? Because it's not really music, is it? Well, man, if I was a grown up then, I'd have found Roland Rat insufferable. Well, I was, I mean, I was 16, so yeah. I was too old for this. And yeah. also, yeah. I, I was not an ITV person. I just didn't watch. So, I, yeah, oh. this this totally sort of passed me by. And to the extent to, to, to the extent that I heard it at all. If Frank Boff had done a fucking <laughs> single with the Green Goddess, you'd have been all over it, Oh, yeah, you? him and Selena Scott doing a nice Christmassy uh, duet, you know, probably wearing yeah. festive jumpers. Yeah. yeah. In terms of Frank Boff's personal habits, he would have been better off doing a hip-hop record. He's more suited to that kind of MC. Oh, f- yeah, f- yeah. Fucking b- <laughs> but the thing, I mean, Roland Rats, it's one of those things that gets popular with kids fundamentally because doing an impression of him was a piece of yeah. piss anyone could <laughs> yeah. do an impression of Roland Yeah, 
So it, it was just the Blakey of his age, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the following week, Rat Rapping jumped up nine places to number 18 and would get as high as number 14. The follow-up, a cover of Love Me Tender, would get to number 32, his last bit of chart action. So what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One follows up with Wildlife on One from the Tanner River in Africa. The episode of Only Fools and Horses where Dell gets Rodney and Grandad to clean a chandelier. A documentary about the crazy gang. Barry Norman reviewing Krull, Brainstorm and Jaws 3D. Fucking out early 80s, what were you like? And finishes with a repeat of The Rockford Files. BBC Two is running a two-hour opera concert, followed by the final part of the documentary series The Great Palace, The Story of Parliament, Carol singing from Cromore in Ireland, and the drama series The Roads of Exile about Russo. ITV is running an episode of the American miniseries Hotel, the film Capricorn One, and more Carol singing in a show called Gloria. And Channel 4 is screening Bands of Gold with Tony Capstick and the Dagenham Crusaders in Miami for some reason, followed by the farming film accounts and what the papers say. Not much Christmassiness, is it? No, but Capricorn One, man. Conspiracy theory classic. Yeah, that. Yes. OJ yeah, yeah, yeah. Simpson, of course, starring in it. And uh, yeah. yeah, basically adding fuel to that whole thing. Uh, the moon landings didn't happen, man. It was all faked. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, I like that film. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's really weird because, you know, you, nowadays with three days before Christmas, you <clears> wouldn't <throat> have Christmas rammed up your arse on the telly at this time, wouldn't you? Yeah. They're keeping the powder dry for Christmas Eve, which is how it should be. I'll tell you what, though, as, as much as um, there not be much Christmassy stuff, it also made me think there's not a lot for kids uh, on that schedule. No, yeah, so yeah. Really um, it, it just made me think how much I would have cherished Top of the Pops um, at yeah. that time as just this kind of brief window into my culture and my life, you know. Yeah, and and of course the fact that there's another one coming up very soon. Mm. Mm. Uh, but the, the crucial thing is as well, at that time, as a child, your excitement about Christmas came before anyone else's. It came before grown-ups' yes. excitement. So it oh, wasn't yeah, like you were excited before. about Christmas and you put the telly on, there was a ton of Christmas stuff. You were excited about Christmas way before you know, grown-ups were. So the mm. real excitement absolutely swung in on Christmas Eve, perhaps the day before Christmas Eve. But you weren't, it's not that you weren't allowed to get excited about Christmas, but Christmas started on the 23rd, as I recall back then. Not yeah. on the fucking 10th of bloody November as it is now. Yeah, yeah. So what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? I'd probably be talking about a crap top of the pot sauce last night. Um, mm. And how I hoped, I probably would have hoped that only you would have been Christmas number one, because I, I really like that song. I might have been talking about perhaps... How embarrassing Dennis Waterman and George Colwell. <laughs> I would have been talking about flying pickets, I think. Like, oh, do you see that group? They haven't even got any instruments. And, mm. um, you know, just sort of testing the water and see what people thought of that. Oh, uh, yeah. Your, for your band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And maybe also um, Culture Club, although um, that would have been old news by now because it's, you know, probably already been shown. Um, yeah. And what are we buying on Saturday? Well, I can answer that quite easily. I bought uh, Billy Joel, Tell Her About It, on 7-inch. I wouldn't have bought oh, Victims by Culture Club, actually, because I already had the album, and yeah. you had to ration out your pocket money quite carefully in mm. those days. Yeah. Now, I would have bought um, Victims, because I, I think it's the best record on the, on this episode of Top of the Pops. But at the time, I probably would have bought Roland Rat. 
<laughs> and what does this episode tell us about late 1983? I think Howard Jones is the bit that says everything um, mm, in this episode yes. um, because it, it, you know, it was the year that the post-punk wave started to properly run out of steam. And just fashion-wise, it was... I mean, it was the start of rah-rah skirts and ankle bracelets for girls, and the year pa- yeah. and and the year pastel broke for boys. Mm. So, um, and basically, pop became pastel in the year after that, yeah. which I kind of didn't like. Mm. I, I think it, what it tells us is that after that brief, fantastic flare-up between '79 and '82, where pop seemed briefly or occasionally, at least, to be in the hands of freaks and weirdos and non-musicians to a certain extent, thinkers and visionaries in a way, rather than people who just pootled around on instruments. Pop mm. is now being taken back by the pros, if you like, mm. given back to musicians um, in a way that probably would have been approved of completely by older musicians. Do you know what I mean? So like yeah. all the people who were kind of displaced by punk to a certain extent or were threatened by what had happened with the growth of electronic music and what happened punk and post-punk will have felt slightly more comfortable in 83 in that music and the new technology that it was being made on was being returned to, you know, serious musicians with compositional skills, um, mm. which is exactly analogous to pop getting duller and more boring in terms of what's in the charts. And that pop crazed youngsters book on the latest episode of chart music all that remains now is for me to say you can get a website at www.chart-music.co.uk you can get with us at facebook facebook.com slash chart music podcast and you can join the conversation on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p oh and don't sleep on the video playlist that we knock out, which can be found on all those formats. Uh, everything we talk about, all the songs that we've played today, all the random shit we go on about, and a few other things as well, you can find it there if you really want to stick your face into the crotch of December 1983. Thank you very much, Neil Kulkarni. Thanks, Al. Always welcome, Neil. Always a pleasure, never a burden. And thank you very much, Simon Price. Nadole Klawen. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's Christmas! My name's Al Needham, and I have got Johnny's for ears. (laughs) Chart music. Hold on, here comes the chism.